Podcast Starts. Hello everyone and welcome back to And Now The Podcast Starts, a show which talks about horror, cinema and anything related that takes the interest of my wonderful co-hosts or myself. I'm T.D. Velasquez, but you can call me Dan in Greater Manchester, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by... Stella Gaynor in Manchester. And also... Kirsty Warrow in Shropshire. And what's wonderful about this episode is that we all get to relax a little bit because the main discussion is something that Kirsty and I recorded several months back and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But here we are with Stella as well just for the intro and all three of us will be back at the end of the show as well to um, chat about some recommendations to follow up a little on last week's topic which was uh, horror remakes. But first of all... um, Let's just report if we've got any exciting news from horror or from life that we'd like to talk about. I've got some horror news. Um, I was very, very, very excited this week to see the uh, trailer release of the sequel to um, the Korean zombie movie Train to Busan. Um, Director is Yeon Sang-ho. Apologies if I've got that wrong. Um, But the new one, the Train to Busan, it's called Train to Busan Presents Peninsula. And it's set four years into the uh, zombie apocalypse pandemic whatever you want to call it and i've got the um the brief synopsis here says a soldier is forced to re-enter the infested zone and they find some survivors and i knew the uh the sequel was coming but i didn't see the trailer until yesterday and it looks amazing <laughs> wow, <laughs> it looks so right. so good i mean it looks first and foremost it looks ridiculous like <laughs> zombies apocalypse turned up to 11 as it were but it, yeah, it looks so much fun. Um, it looks a bit kind of Mad Maxy as well. Like everyone who is still alive has gone feral, and yeah, I can't, I can't bloody wait for that. <laughs> Wonderful. I haven't seen the original yet. I have to say, I've got it recorded, um, and it's something that I've just been saving for myself. Oh, it's wonderful. Um, but the end made me bawl my eyes out. So I will give you that warning. Right. Okay. Wow. Yeah. No. Um, I look forward very much to to any new exciting zombie stuff. I love yeah. those things. So I didn't even know that that was that had been produced or what. Um, I guess I'm slightly out of touch. But the trailer is out, so it's it's a complete film. And presumably, do you know if it's um, going to be released to streaming directly? Well, the, or? Um, I looked at it on uh, Vulture. Um, which is an excellent industry um, magazine. Um, and it said on there that the original plan was to come out this summer, but then it says at the end of the article, depending on the pandemic, so I guess when theatres can be reopened safely, but it was intended to come out this summer. So like you say, it is finished and ready to go, but I think they're just waiting for um, safety procedures to allow mm-hmm. um, the pandemic to allow us to watch a film about zombies, which is all levels of great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can see that one going possibly more likely going to um, you know digital streaming. Yeah, possibly because obviously our you know as soon as they are open, the cinemas are going to be somewhat you know rammed in terms of the choice. Not people, obviously, <laughs> but in terms of the programming. <laughs> yeah, um, because of all the d- delayed re- you know uh, releases. So yeah, there's been a lot of delays, hasn't there? Wasn't yeah, yeah. But yeah, if you, if you can get to go and see it in a safe um, and socially distant way, then do so, because it does look incredible. Right. Well, I'm, I'm certainly going to go straight to YouTube and find that trailer, definitely. Yeah. Um, unless, um, well, it's not going to give anything away um, about the first film, is it? You know, uh, do I... 
No, you don't need to have seen the first film. Basically, oh. you're in Korea. There's been a zombie apocalypse. That's all you need to know. <laughs> okay, great. So it's like a George A. Romero zombie universe. The, the yeah. next film is yeah. just different yeah. characters. Okay, great. Um, fantastic news. That's exciting. How about you, Kirsty? Um, I don't have any news, not new news anyway, um, but uh, I came across an article yesterday, and just for context, because it's going to become important, um, it is the 17th of June as I'm speaking, so yesterday was the 16th of June, um, to commemorate the um, 60th anniversary of the release of Psycho into American cinemas. Um, of course. Which, you know, kind of uh, love it or hate it, you know, um, is a, you know, a... a a important kind of horror work um and i read some assessment about the idea that you know kind of the 20th century was carved into two pieces one ah, you yes. know kind of before <laughs> psycho and then after and of course in terms of the development of the genre um psycho is a you know a massively important um turning point um because of what was allowed to what what it started to mean in terms of uh filmmakers being able to kind of get onto americans you know um uh, cinema screens, um, the end of the Hays Code, and um, you know, kind of the yeah, slightly darker um, kind of thematic stuff coming into um, American cinema more prominently. Um, and of course, we have the you know the iconic shower scene, and you know the use of editing, mm. etc. Um, so it's you know it's an important work, um, and I just thought it was worth mentioning. That's 60 years. 60 years. 60 years. Wow. Yeah. It is very important. And yeah, that's incredible, really. Um, I, I suppose I'll mention that um, Mark Kermode on his podcast has released an episode dedicated to it yesterday. Um, and he has Kim Newman on it, who's one of my film critic heroes. Mm -hmm. um, and they just talk about uh, the movie for an hour. But they also go into detail about Peeping Tom, um, which oh, was that's released. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, because that's also just over 60 years old. Um, it was released a few weeks out, uh, earlier than Psycho. And they also discuss all the Psycho sequels and the remake, um, right. which is, is always interesting to hear. Um, there's also a good video on YouTube um, that's about all four of the original series of Psycho movies mm -hmm. uh, by Red Letter Media. Um, that's quite interesting and enthusiastic. When that, that came out a couple of years ago, it inspired me to go back and watch Psycho 2 and 3 back-to-back, -back, which was um, a surprisingly good experience. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I have to say, especially um, the second one, Psycho 2, is uh, is really great. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, I still... Um, uh, I'm very fond of the original film and... Um, Obviously, uh, its historical importance can't be overstated, really. Um, but um, I think it still, it, possibly it still stands up as just a piece of entertainment. Uh, I, I find myself asking that question uh, to myself because I think the last two times I've watched it, I've not watched it. I've watched Gus Van Sant's remake, which I've actually seen <laughs> twice. Um uh, which is just uh, fascinating on so many levels. Um, and I'll just, as a, a final note, just say I love the score from Psycho so much. Yeah. Um, which is such an important horror score, um, but it's a piece of really um, kind of unique uh, or kind of emblematic piece of symphonic movie scoring mm. because it's uh, one of those where they, you know, 
the filmmakers made kind of deliberate choices about the sound they wanted to create and mm. the, the uh, music from Psycho they chose to have only string instruments. Yeah. Which I think was such a... Um, uh, such a trendsetter for horror films generally, yeah. kind of going forward. And of course, uh, Brian De Palma in Carrie has his composer, Pino Danegio, quoted almost note for, no, for note at certain points. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously, I, well, I mean, I, I think that movie had um, Bernard Herrmann, who wrote the music originally, not died in, I think, 75. I'm sure he would have scored Carrie. Yeah. Um, and Brian De Palma obviously thought, look, the, the, we're not going to get any better than the screeching strings no. <laughs> from Psycho, so just put them in that. Um, and, you know, they are hair-raising. Yeah, I so, think um, with, with um, Psycho as well, I think it's an important film in terms of the idea of shock and how shock plays into yeah. um, horror. Um, I remember Hitchcock... Um, yeah, not personally, I remember. No. Um, <laughs> but I remember he he talked about you know the kind of what he in terms of narratives and plotting. What he liked is the idea of you know kind of putting the audience on this what he called kind of switchback railway. So the early you know kind of roller coaster thing where you know you seem to be going off in one direction and at a certain point you kind of go off in an entirely yeah. unexpected direction. Um, and you know, Psycho is so important for that kind of you know the expectation it sets up at the beginning. No spoilers. Mm. For those of you who've not seen it, see yeah. it, um, you know, and kind of taking it, uh, taking us in, in di- to different places than we thought we were going to go to begin with. Yeah, yeah where you end yeah. up at the end of the film compared yeah. to the, where you were at the start. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, like you say, it's a proper roller coaster of a journey. Yeah. 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 So do do watch it, but if you go to film school, don't write an essay on it, for God's no. sake. <laughs> <laughs> Please, no. If it, Please if don't. It, <laughs> if it's possible to watch it without already knowing the ending uh, these days... Yeah, that's true. Then, ...then do. And if you can't avoid that information, then try and learn as much about the context that it was released in, um, which that podcast with Kermode and Newman mm. is really good for, because... Yeah. Uh, to help you put yourself in the frame of mind of the audience, how they would have received it and ex- yeah. the kind of expectations they would have had, because that's, I guess, the way that you're most likely going to get the... Um, you're going to appreciate what the film then does mm. with what it's about. Um, uh, yeah. This um, chat about Psycho does actually make me want to go and watch it again, but I probably won't, as far <laughs> as I know. It, it's not available on streaming services at the moment well maybe it is I, I, I mean ones where you don't have to pay extra for it um, and my VHS of it is locked in a box somewhere and also my VHS player doesn't really work so that's not going <laughs> to help um, okay so thanks folks that's been a great intro um, what we're going to do now is segue to the discussion Kirsty and I recorded uh, last year about um well, focusing on four movies by female uh, new film directors, all the films we discuss are from the last ten years, I think. Yeah, um, I think so. Uh, we're going to talk about the Babadook, Revenge, a girl who walks, a girl walks home alone at night. That's the title I yeah. always get wrong, including in this discussion. <laughs> um, and the Love Witch. And uh, just to let the listener have a bit of a heads up, it's a general discussion. If you haven't seen the films, 
we don't really go into spoilers in terms of like spoiling the endings of the films or anything, except in the case of The Babadook, which is the oldest film we talk about. Um, there is a bit in the discussion of um, the movie Prevenge where neither myself or Kirsty can remember the name of an actress who's really good in it, so I'm just going to point out now that that person uh, was Kate Dickey. Yeah, I was um, going to say, I was about to say it's Kate Dickey. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. And... Um, also, we then talk about uh, the only one of these directors of these four films who's gone on to make another film so far is Jennifer Kent. Well, um, n- n- is that so, uh, am I wrong? Yeah. yeah, so Anna Lily Amapur um, made The Bad Patch. Oh, right, okay. So, so I didn't which know is that a sort of, yeah, kind of a post apocalyptic kind of exploitation thing. Um, yeah, so she's she's got two as well. Okay, so when did that come out? Uh, that came out a couple of years ago. It's been oh, on, right. Yeah, I think it's been on Netflix. Okay, it's just we don't mention <laughs> that in the discussion. No, um, that was so my, I, my my fault. <laughs> no yeah, so bad bad batch. Yeah, 2016 actually. Okay, so, so it sounds like she stayed broadly within the kind of horror genre. Yeah. Um, it's a, so it, it, this is what it says on IMDb. In a desert dystopia, a young woman is kidnapped by cannibals. I would say, yeah, that's... <laughs> no, it's a sitcom, isn't it? That's a sitcom, surely. Um, <laughs> if it's not, it should be. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Copyright 2020. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so, great. Oh, that, that's, that's good to check out. Um, so, well, um, the bit in towards the end of the discussion where we talk about how None of the directors except Jennifer Kent have made anything else, but that's not accurate. No. <laughs> and also, uh, I'll just apologise in advance because I forgot the name of Jennifer Kent's second film, but Kirsty um, d- um, does correct me in the yeah. discussion, so that'll come up. Um, the three of us will be back after the um, main discussion to um, follow up on horror remakes and to discuss recommendations for the coming week. All right, see you at the other side, folks. Bye. Bye. Hello, Kirsty. Hi, Dan. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. So, uh, this is uh, a discussion that you suggested. We're going to talk about female uh, creators of, of horror films. Yeah. Um, and we're going to use four particular films as illustrative examples. Sure. And I want to thank you for suggesting those films because... Uh, well, for a start, you introduced me to The Love Witch. You're welcome. Um, a film from 2016. Um, I didn't even know this film existed. It must have just slipped through somehow. Well, you know, it, it's um, very B-movie. So, you know, that's not, it's not surprising that it, you know. True, but, you know, but it was, like, reviewed by, like, Mike Kermode and people like that. So it, so it obviously had a bit of an impact. But yeah. I must have just not listened to his show that week. Um, and um, I've, full disclosure... I've not watched quite the whole film. I'm still 10 minutes from the end because <laughs> okay. various things have unexpectedly happened while I've been trying to watch it. Okay. But um, it's an absolutely bizarre but wonderful film. Yeah. I'm loving it to bit. Yeah, it's 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 lovely and uh, beguiling. And um, I think my introduction to it actually was because uh, I read, I think, in an interview um, with David Fincher that he'd recently seen it and, and enjoyed it. So I was like, well, if Fincher likes it... <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Good on him. Yeah, absolutely. No, fair enough. Uh, somebody else said to me recently, uh, he's the nearest thing we've probably got to like Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. 
in current cinema. Yeah. So if it was Kubrick saying it, you'd listen. Yes. So Fincher is, is 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 a fair enough recommendation. Yeah, it's it's a very strange and wonderful film. So we want to talk about um, uh, how female filmmakers um, bring kind of unique qualities to the to the genre of horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I just want to say at the outset, I think it's kind of interesting to me. Horror has always been kind of a a feminine genre in probably the same way that, um, you know, like action movies are stereotypically a male genre. I think there are there have been feminine um, interests and qualities in horror, probably because it a lot of it derives from like gothic literature. Yeah, I think, you know, it depends on the type of horror, though. Yes, uh, cer- certainly. And, and also, and I want to qualify that by saying... It's been primarily created by men, certainly mm. in film, over the years for most of you know the twentieth century, um, and that's yeah just starting to change now. It's well, it's I think it's an interesting kind of question to ask, really, because or at least your your kind of point about you know seeing um, horror as being sort of feminine. I think um, you can't see me, obviously, but I'm you know I'm kind of air quoting that idea of feminine. Um, sure, yeah, because yeah, you know it, it is you know kind of it's to do with the kind of notions of what we associate with kind of femininity and kind of and 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 women and you know and which is hugely gendered. Um, and I think you know kind of my my standpoint with you know kind of horror and from you know it's very much embedded within me as a you know kind of cisgendered heterosexual woman I am you know I teach film studies I um you know have a huge kind of passion for cinema but as I've got older I've been increasingly kind of aware of how my perspectives on film aren't kind of uh, adjacent um or rooted in the kind of the you know kind of the ideologies of the filmmakers in that I access films that are often made I feel for a um, predominantly male audience or at least a kind of mainstream gendered audience um and that often as a female viewer a cis female heterosexual viewer that I'm slightly augmenting um the films in my own head just to try and kind of you know kind of get what they you know the kind of preferred response I suppose um so that's you know and I think what's been interesting with you know that's I think that's true of all genres um all mainstream films um but what I think was particularly interesting with horror is the way that my experience as a viewer has sort of changed through my becoming a mother um Right. You know, I was, um, you know, I've always been a massive fan of horror, always had a huge appetite for horror. Um, and I think that part of, the, you know, the joy of horror often is about, you know, it's managed risk taking, isn't it? You kind of, you go through, you put yourself in, in that position. Like if I was in, you know, the kind of victim's position, that would be horrific and terrible. And oh my gosh. And that ultimately, you know, kind of as, you know, as, as a, a non-parent, that that's, that you're the kind of the sacrifice, if you like, to horror. Um, as what I found is that as a, um, you know, as becoming a, a parent, um, suddenly I'm not the sacrifice to horror. Um, I, you know, it's my children. And that's actually kind of made the horror of horror more profound um, because it's not about me anymore. Um, And so that's kind of, you know, led me to a sort of re-examination of my relationship to horror. Um, 
But particularly, I've then, you know, kind of in that period come across these four films that we're going to talk about, um, two of which really, really strongly kind of draw on that idea of kind of motherhood and motherhood in relation to horror. Um, so, and I think, it, they, you know, the films have things to say about, you know, kind of motherhood and femininity, but particularly because they're being made from a female perspective. So, yeah, so that's kind of where where I kind of start. But then there's also that idea that, you know, kind of, to kind of go back to how, you know, one of my, my kind of interests is thinking about how women are represented, um, not just women, but, you know, kind of often that's what my focus is, how women are represented in horror. And in particularly in, in horror, horror is about suffering, isn't it, in, in many ways, that kind of sense of dread and then the eventual kind of... Often. Yeah, 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 the kind of suffering. But the suffering is often gendered in that you know conventionally we would you know kind of horror operates on a there's a male kind of threat um and a often a kind of female victim and yeah there is the the idea of um uh carol clover's idea of the final girl which is you know in the slasher film where you have the the, you know the kind of final victim or at least the the kind of last survivor is uh is you know female but she's the most virtuous you know in terms of a kind of yes that was um carol clover's book men women and chainsaws wasn't it that kind of um drew together tropes from the kind of post halloween slasher genre that emerged and uh, and constructed um, kind of feminist interpretations of it. Um, very seminal book still. Yeah. Absolutely, but I kind of feel like that's a little bit of kind of, you know, horror, uh, or at least kind of an ability to kind of look at horror as sort of being a little bit kind of progressive, as in, oh, but the girl survives, um, or at least she's last to die, whereas I don't feel that it's, you know, kind of necessarily that kind of positive um, in, you know, kind of the whole... Well, you whole... could argue that it's very conservative Yeah, no, it well, is, absolutely. Yes, it's the girl, but it's... Yeah, it's the one who's... It, it's, if yeah. it's based in an idea of um, virtue yeah. or um, virginity or whatever. Yes. So, so, you know, it's playing to a very uh, coded set of assumptions about what is good and what is... Um, what a heroic character should be, so... So it, so that makes it problematic, kind of even before you get to the gender of the character. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think, I think you know, kind of off the back of that, what what I've become kind of quite interested in is there's a, another kind of scholar, Barbara Creed, who talks about um, what she describes as being the monstrous feminine in horror, which is okay. I I, I know the phrase monstrous feminine, but I didn't know. Uh, I don't know Barbara Craig's work. Did she invent that? Yes, phrase? I believe so. Oh. Um, but she talks about the, or at least she, she she uses it in relation to kind of horror films. Um, so what she does is she talks about the way in which that um, when we don't have that kind of that gendered uh, or kind of traditional gender relationship between male um, male threat and female victim in horror. Um, we sometimes get a bit of a switch on that, in that you know it's not but it's not just a, oh we'll just you know kind of we'll you know they just make the 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 monster kind of female and that that's you know there's no other kind of augmentation um but what she talks about is that when that when it's the woman woman who is made kind of the the threat in horror is that it's done quite often um quite explicitly based around the idea of you know kind of a woman's either reproductive um you know kind of or 
or sexual kind of, you know, kind of the things that make her kind of biologically cisgendered, kind of womanly, um, that those are often used to kind of basis, as the basis of the horror. I apologise that I don't have the dates at hand, but if you look at, um, there was the, the Jessica Chastain um, horror film a few years ago, Mama. Oh, yes. No, I don't know. Off, off the top of my head. Yeah, and we, and even Woman in Black, really, which is, you know, kind of, you know, ostensibly about, you know, the kind of ghost who's lost her child and that's the kind of root of her kind of... Yeah, you know, yeah, wronged Yeah, mother. wronged mother, exactly. But, you know, it's it's the, the, you know, the kind of, the threat comes out of her kind of feminine maternal grief. Um, or even, um, not, I have to say, a film that I've seen, but one that I am uh, aware of, Teeth. Have you heard of Teeth? Teeth? Yes. Good title, yeah, but no. no I so, Teeth is, is a kind of version of the, and, and, this, uh, and apologies that we're getting to this quite so early, the Vagina Dentata. Oh, no, sorry, Teeth, yes. right. I thought you said Keith. No, not Keith. I thought that would be a very strange no. title for a. Um, okay, no, I do know Teeth. Yes, yes it's, it's uh, early 2000s, yeah. I think. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Yeah. And it's a British film, I think. Yes, is it? I think so. I think yeah. so. But uh, yeah, so again, these are these are films that kind of exemplify that idea that that um, that uh, Creed was talking about. And I think what's interesting is that that you know that in, in each of those cases, you've got films that are um, where you have this you know monstrous feminine, but the you know the films are largely kind of written and directed um, by um kind of men um and they are you know kind of the the um yeah the the woman is very much kind of coded as being kind of you know kind of the the horror threat around those ideas of 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 particularly of um you know kind of maternal qualities um or kind of aggressive you know kind of female agent sexual agency as in in teeth so yeah, I mean, I think even um, that that recent Octavia Spencer film, mm. I can't remember the title. Yeah, no, of, I think that's it's something yeah, like yeah, 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 uh, it's, yeah. Again, not not not. Seen no. that though, either. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's a you know it's a trope, isn't it? In in um, in horror um, that we can kind of you know point at as being. Um, something that you know when when female characters get to be the kind of big bad to use a kind of Buffyism, um, they you know that it's it's very it's done in quite limited ways rather than just a kind of straight gender flip and kind of having quite a complex you know kind of psychological character. Um, it's you know she is the threat because she's a mother or she is a threat because she's you know kind of aberrantly sexual or whatever. Um, so. My question really kind of from that was, okay, well, we've got these four films that are all written. Well, yeah, I mean, they're all written, directed, um, written and directed by women. So, you know... In the case of The Love Witch, yeah, I know. it doesn't just stop they're with writing written, directed, directing. produced, edited and scored by uh, Annabella. Um, and yeah, designed the costumes Absolutely. And so, um, you know, there's potential auto in the making there, I feel. Um, so it's a very singular kind of piece. Um, and then um, A Girl Walks Home alone i think actually the, it was interesting as well about these i think is think they're all um debut features as well just think looking at them so a girl walks home alone um at night uh, which i just might call a girl walks home um is uh by uh, american iranian um filmmaker anna lily amipour um and is yeah kind of yeah the first apparently the first iranian vampire western um and the babadook the babadook by jennifer kent um 
Australian psychological horror, and then Prevenge, um, uh, a comedy slasher um, by Alice Lowe, who, side note, I absolutely love. Um, uh, so again, a Brit- Brit- she's brilliant. Uh, yeah, I love, I love her. Um, so, and I was also so that's a you know again a, both. I think the the Babadook and Prevenge sort of needed kind of discussion, sort of slightly adjacent to the other two because the other two are sort of still more slightly different. But yeah, so they all you know kind of present this idea of you know the kind of female monster the monstrous feminine as creed would have it but i think they are you know kind of not as straightforward as those kind of you know traditional representations and that's that's what i'd really like to talk about really dan that's fantastic well i am i'm loving talking about it already so um let's dig in um i i love all these films i've only just recently watched a girl who walks alone at night or a girl walks alone at night. A girl walks home alone no at night. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and that's a wonderful yeah. uh, movie. Um, uh, and I think that would be a good place to start. Okay. Well, brilliant. So, A Girl Who Walks Alone at yeah. Night. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I just watched this. So, it's... I, I mean, I knew it was going to be good. I'd read the reviews and things. I'd just not got around to it. But it was a really pleasant surprise to me. Um because it's an Iranian film, although filmed in America, I, I believe. Yeah, well, it's actually an American independent film, but made, yeah, and, and shot in California as well, interestingly, but obviously um, set in Iran um, in this, you know, uh, was it called Bad City? It tells you everything about the setting of that. Um, and the film, you know, kind of, it doesn't sort of, other than sort of saying Bad City, it doesn't locate itself in a, in a sort of an Iran that, you know, is, is terribly kind of specific. Um, but it's, you know, I think it has clearly been made for a, you know, an American or certainly a kind of Western audience. Um, yes, and, and um, I think you can, you can tell that even though it, um, everybody speaks iranian and it is subtitled um it's it's there's a number of english language songs on the soundtrack um the credits are in english and things like that i really like the fact that um i was surprised to find that i knew a couple of the iranian bands because basically the soundtrack is is mainly source songs Mm -hmm. there's not really score no um except for a couple of moments um and Two of the bands who who recur repeatedly, Kiosk and Radio Tehran, are bands that I just kind of discovered on YouTube in the last few years, yeah. and really like. So I was just so all the songs I kind of knew. Um, uh, I, I I don't know if that contributed to um, the effect that the director might have wanted when the music comes in. Yeah, well, I think um, um, what's interesting but about it certainly contributes to my enjoyment. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about Anna, Anna Lily Amrapour, um is that she, I mean, I think f- from what I've read, she has um, she has some slight hearing problems, um, but music is really, really important to her. Um, and the, I think she's sort of talked about how particularly the music in this film is very much about kind of the characters and telling you... Um, or conveying particularly the kind of emotional experience of the kind of titular girl who is, you know, again, um, just, you know, for, for those of you, those listeners who've not, um, seen the film and not to kind of give too much of a spoiler, but, um, it's a horror film because, you know, one of the lead characters is a vampire. Um, but she's, uh, and this is, I think, where we kind of get into the, the interesting kind of monstrous feminine inequality. So the, the the film is set in this kind of contemporary Iran, but it's an Iran with lots of problems. I mean, 
you know, kind of if you spot it at the beginning of the film, there's a big kind of pit which is just full of bodies that people just dump, you know, kind of bodies in. So it's clearly a problematic um, place. And there's not a lot of um, kind of contextual detail around the place and, and time. No. I think you're just... It just, yeah, I, it is. I mean, people don't even really watch TV. There, there aren't really, really news reports. Um, near the start, someone is watching a TV programme and it has kind of a... Um, a very severe sort of uh, self-help message, I think. Um, like it's it's a, a magazine program where someone's giving out um, a very bleak portrayal of, um, I think, relationships. Yes, yeah. Um, but apart from that, you you've just got this. The focus is on this area. None of the characters seems to have a job apart from the one who's a prostitute and the one who's her pimp. Yeah, being a pimp counts as a job. Um, and there's a there's a lot of dr- these characters kind of are, are all drifting in this space, and then there's this um, uh, this woman, the, the, the girl character. I can't remember. Is she just yeah, called the girl? She's, she's she not, not named. Name? She's not named in the, in the, in the film at all. So she's just yeah, just the, the girl. We'll call her. Um, played quite beautifully by um, Sheila Van. There's this very kind of you know she's very sort of nouvelle vague kind of you know eighties kind of throwback um very cinematically cool character um yeah so i I think what's what's kind of useful to kind of talk about with her is the way that the film kind of positions us in in relation to this iranian space which you know as as westerners we can kind of clearly represent you know acknowledge as being this you know kind of middle eastern um kind of country where you know women are you know kind of I don't want to go as far as saying oppressed, but there's certainly the kind of the representation is different from, you know, the cultural norms around kind of um, femininity, particularly in public spaces are different. Um, So there's a a lovely kind of a couple of sequences where um, the girl is outside wearing her, you know, her shadow. as you know as would be expected and then she kind of goes into her her kind of private bedroom space and takes it off and then is you know kind of transformed into a much more kind of westernized representation of femininity with short hair and makeup and kind of pop music um and she has this kind of you can't tell because it's black and white film but um and very beautifully shot in that way but she has a a stripy t-shirt which you can always see um you know, even when she's she's in her gown, but um, you know, it just kind of it creates this quite funny um, and slightly sad image that she's she, when she's out on the streets and she's quite a, a bleak figure in a way, but you still can see this kind of sliver of her stripy top just coming through the folds of her of her gown. Um, kind of like that's her personality trying to escape yeah and this and again there's kind of a quite a, an enjoyable little kind of sequence where she um manages to um which i want to talk about it's like it's like a slightly different context but she manages to acquire a skateboard um and then there's a lovely sequence that she's sort of you know with still with her shadow on um kind of skateboarding down the middle of this you know kind of abandoned you know kind of road at night um which is you know is quite joyous and there's you know kind of another little bit where she's uh, uh, you know, she's sort of pulling herself along a wall in a quite a childlike fashion while still on the skateboard. Um, yeah. So, so anyway, what I wanted to kind of talk about is the fact that the film is, it, it's very much, or it can be read um, um, as sort of a little bit of a kind of comment on, or at least, you know, 
contextually, we can think about the Reclaim the Night movement, um, that, you know, the kind of, um, you know, this is kind of late 90s, early 2000s, kind of women around the world kind of, you know, kind of, uh, kind of be- becoming kind of quite active in challenging the idea that that um, uh, that women aren't safe in you know kind of urban spaces, particularly at night alone. So even the title of the film, "A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night," um, is a you know an intrinsically kind of horrific and rebellious act you know it's one that you know both kind of you know seems to be a kind of defiant act but also has this kind of you know sense of threat in it um uh and so the kind of the the in some ways you can kind of look at this 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 you know kind of titular girl the vampire as being partly kind of made monstrous by the fact that she she challenges the kind of you know the expected kind of um you know, behaviour of women in this kind of space, not least in the fact that she kind of goes the beginning of the film when we first kind of not meet her, but we we kind of discover her true nature and she she um follows she's following Saeed, who's the pimp character um down the street and he you know if the if the genders were reversed then that would be a quite a threatening situation but he turns around to her and and essentially assumes that she therefore wants sex um so he invites her back to his his you know his house um which is again quite a westernized space full of you know kind of lots of um yeah, kind of the the uh, evidence of his ill-gotten gains from his pimping and drug dealing. Um, and, um, you know, he's not at all in that situation with this, you know, girl that he doesn't know, feeling at all threatened. In fact, he's very cocky. Um, excuse the pun. Um, and, <laughs> you know, the kind, of, the, the, the kind of climax of the scene is that she, you know, essentially she kind of, she uh, removes a digit from him um, after, you know, a seeming to, you know, seemingly kind of, you know engaging with him in quite a suggestive manner um uh which is not obviously at all what he's expecting in this situation so he's she sort of subverts that idea of kind of feminine sexual submissiveness and the idea that you know kind of you know that he's kind of the sexual you know kind of um alpha male um and completely kind of you know um removes his power not least in the fact that you know kind of the removal of the digit is i'm sorry i'm going to go to freud now kind of you know freudian kind of castration symbolically yes and also i mean it um she doesn't just remove the digit um it later ends up somewhere yes i don't, I don't know no, no. too much but there's, there's there's a lot of symbolism involved with with what she does with it can i just say um again without spoiling the scene i just love that scene particularly um it's genuinely frightening yes. in moments but also kind of funny there's just, just something <laughs> very original about the way the characters react to each other that i would cut you know i'll call this a vampire movie yeah um it's the film as a whole has a lot of little moments which you feel like you should have seen in vampire movies lots of times but you somehow haven't it just plays the familiar scenarios in in an interesting way yeah. all the time yeah so i think kind of think that that the girl is in, you know she's she's a you know kind of vampire which again and 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 i'm i'm sorry Dan, this will be it's a really specific reference that nobody else will probably get um but that i always kind of when i was watching this thinking i was thinking oh well you know it's kind of unusual isn't it to see um you know that it's the the girl is the vampire and the the boy is the kind of you know um the mortal kind of lover um uh, and that made me think of rose tinted um which you know li- listeners there was 
it was a, a script that Dan and I were sort of developing, or Dan was, um, in the very, very early 2000s, where... Well, we, we worked yes, together. Yeah, yeah. Yes, no, it, it did remind me a little bit of what we were doing, so... Um, yes. Uh, I wasn't going to mention <laughs> it, but absolutely. No, and um, uh, hats off to you, uh, Anna Lily Amapor. Uh, you, you did what we wanted to do. I think we might have even done it... We, we might have even been thinking about doing it in black and white. Yes, I think so. I think, uh, anyway, yeah, she didn't at all steal our sender. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... But, um, yeah, just, and then just in terms of, so, the, so the, the characters are obviously then kind of, you know, give this kind of sexual agency, which is kind of equated with monstrous because she, you know, monstrous, monstrosity rather, because she, you know, kills, you know, very, very quickly we go from, you know, a sexual scenario into a kind of, you know, a violent death. Um, and then later in the kind of how she acquires um, the skateboard is um, that there's this, again, I think unnamed kind of street kid who becomes quite important to the story, um, who she kind of um, has a little bit of an encounter with um, about kind of two thirds of the way into the film. And she, you know, very kind of pointedly asks him if he if he is a good boy and that he, you know, needs to be a good boy, otherwise she will punish him. Um, and that kind of sets her up as this kind of in some ways as uh, uh, you know particularly in relation to her you know her dispatching of Saeed as this kind of uh, character who is like an avenging kind of feminist angel who um you know uh, essentially kind of provides justice for you know kind of female oppression not least because we have this other character Atty who's the prostitute who you know we see Saeed kind of um, you know abusing earlier in the film yeah he's very abusive yes yeah absolutely so you you want you want him to face some kind of come up yeah and there's another, another um, character later on um who also abuses Zati. and the mo- moment that he kind of makes a significant tra- significant transition uh, transgression in terms of um her consent you know i think as a as a particularly as a you know kind of female i was sat there thinking oh yeah he's dead now <laughs> um, right. he's absolutely dead and it'll be glorious when it comes um but no, with the, with the little boy though, is it, you know she kind of you know the, there's a kind of again a sort of subversion or a kind of monstrosity kind of made out of that kind of question, which is very much you know older woman to younger boy about you know that kind of regulating of behaviour, which is you know can in some ways be sort of seen as a little bit kind of maternal. Her saying you know you need to be good, otherwise I will you know kind of I will find you. Um, so it has that you know kind of in terms of that idea of um, of um, yeah the monstrous feminine um so yeah anyway tldr um a girl walks home it has this you know kind of way that you can kind of view the film not the only way i might add but the way in which you can kind of view the film as being a sort of comment on not only a woman who you know kind of who is uh forthright enough to kind of stand up and, and to challenge some of those kind of patriarchal um you know kind of um uh, attitudes and kind of abuses of women um but also i think from a cultural point of view um i think it's it's not it's not uh, by accident that the film is about a kind of iranian girl who doesn't kind of quite fit in um because you know amipur kind of you know um you know kind of largely weight raised in the west but has obviously strong connections to iran um and i think in some ways you could maybe look at the, the kind of the vampire as being a, somehow a representation of her maybe Okay, I mean, well, that's, um, uh, I suppose that's a, a thread in the film because um, some of the bands, and I know Kiosk, for instance, they're, they're also Iranian artists who who 
who moved to America and continued to make music about uh, Iran and in Iranian because they know they wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. In their own country. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I think that this, you know, this film definitely has that same kind of quality of, you know, kind of this kind of cultural, um, not transition, but, you know, it exists in both spaces, really, um, um, and draws very strongly on both the Iranian um, elements and the, the kind of, you know, I say Western with a, a small, no, Western with a capital W, but also in the way in which it uses Western with a, a lowercase W, um, you know, kind of trope. Sure. So, you know. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I haven't thought about it as a Western uh, genre. Really? Western. Well, there's that big bit where um, he's... I know. suppose it, it's... Well, it's just maybe because it is... Um, like it, visually, mm. it, it's your wild west town, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but you've got and this very, very, um, you know, um, not Sergio Leone, but um, the composer, Ennio Morricone. That's it, kind of very Ennio Morricone kind of uh, score elements at times, um, which you know, and I, I think, yeah, I suppose I, I, I maybe didn't pick up on that as much because I've seen some very, some films recently which have very strongly referenced that kind of thing. Yeah. Like um, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I just want to say, though, if anybody's not seen A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, um, I, I really loved it. It's it's a really simple story, beautifully crafted. Yeah. Um, so much done without dialogue. Um, amazingly shot. Um, do you know why they chose to shoot in black and white? I don't, actually. I don't. I think I, I think so often the case is it's sometimes it just you know it elevates you know the aesthetics, doesn't it? Well, uh, I think it works as because there's a, a noirish element. You know, she's like a femme fatale. Yeah, and a and a um, French new wave. But element. also, I, I I wonder if they yes, very much so. Um, and I also wonder if um, uh, they were just concerned about because it was not filmed in Iran. Would it look enough like? Uh, Iran, if it was in colour, would the colours be wrong, the light be wrong? I don't know, that just occurred to me. Um, but yeah, and I also love the way, there's certain things that intentionally or otherwise kind of play into genres. Um, you know, like the, 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 the traditional gown that she wears. Yeah, the shadow. Um, gives her that kind of Christopher Lee Dracula silhouette. Yes. Yes, um, which are just, and the film, uh, the film, of course, I, I, love beautifully plays with that image as well, and the the kind of fancy dress party scene um, with the with, yes, yeah. which Anna Lily Amopor is in, isn't she? Yeah, um, in a cameo role. So I did mention Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah. and that was a film that that I also thought about while watching The Love Witch. Yeah. It's true. The Love Witch uh, annoyed me a lot less than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but. Um, <laughs> I've not seen it yet, so I can't. Yeah, I can't comment. But right. yeah, I can. I can imagine how that would be true. Um. But they're both kind of films that. Um, well, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is actually set very specifically in the late sixties. Mm. The Love Witch isn't. No, it doesn't really say when it's set. Although but they're <laughs> they're both made. They put a lot of effort into recreating the visual aesthetic of, kind of. 60s, yeah, mid, late yeah. 50s to mid 70s, I'd yeah. say Hollywood. Yeah, some, somewhere in there. So, yeah, definitely. Um, I, mean, I mean, it's very, very stylized, even down to the performances. Um, 
Yes, um, and and quite wonderfully so. Do you want to give a quick summary of what the story of the Love Witch is? (laughs) Okay, so um, the Love Witch is, uh, well, the the film starts with um, Elaine, um, who is a, a, we're told, a witch, um, and she is driving from, on her own, um, in this beautiful convertible, um, from, we understand, San Francisco to somewhere, Southern California, I'm not sure if it's entirely made clear, or least if it is i apologize i can't remember um and she is is uh kind of leaving um a what is sort of hinted at as being a kind of fairly abusive um marriage um uh from her 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 husband jerry um and she's sort of striking out on her own she has fortunately managed to um get herself uh lovely lodgings in a very beautiful um house um which is uh, kind of uh, looked after by an interior decorator called Trish. Um, um, Elaine's problem, though, is that she kind of, you know, she she has a very specific kind of um, idea for herself in terms of that she, you know, kind of wants to find kind of true love. And her ideas about that are very traditional um in that you know she kind of she fantasizes a little bit about kind of courtly you know kind of knights and ladies and very sort of folky folky kind of you know renaissance fair type um idea of you know kind of women and men in their relationship um she's also it's also unfortunate that she 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 is absolutely beautiful and every man yeah every, every i was just thinking about every man in the film that she meets falls in love with her um what what's what well, pretty, pretty much, much yeah or at least she well, she once helps they just look into her amazing yeah, eyes yes, exactly well at least she helps that process with her kind of witchly uh <laughs> talents um yeah so um and then and one and, you know the, the, what seems to happen is that there's a kind of pattern that develops which is that the, you know they fall in love with her um she, or she seduces them and they become far too attached to her she doesn't really like that so they often meet um sticky ends let's just say that um so it is kind of it's, it's it's interesting i think particularly in a kind of age of instagram to kind of look at this film from a kind of feminist perspective and and annabella who as we you know said wrote directed produced edited and scored the film as well as you know kind of costume design etc um is you know kind of she she describes herself as a feminist and she talked about this film being very much kind of influenced by feminist, you know, kind of film theory. Um, and so Elaine is very much a kind of, you know, a, a version of the femme fatale um, in that she, you know, is, she's well, very well put together and, you know, kind of the men around her, you know, often um, don't do terribly well. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there, there's, you know, kind of there is a bit of a discussion in the film about that kind of the need to, to kind of look a particular way and that how, you know, often who, again, uh, women who, who, who do kind of conform to an aesthetic are then sort of seen as kind of quite, you know, kind of one dimensional. Um, so, the, the, I mean, I'm still kind of I'm still thinking about this film. I, I, it, it's, it is much more complex in the film than I think it first appears. I think when I first watched it, I thought, oh, yeah. It's kind of, you know, the witchcraft is a kind of metaphor for kind of female agency and kind of, you know, kind of female empowerment. But it's, you know, once you start to kind of recognise that actually her, um, Elaine's whole kind of idea, her romanticised kind of happy ever after is very much kind of um, one that's about kind of internalised kind of patriarchal ideas about women sort of, you know, kind of being looked after by men um, and that, you know, men who, you know, are meant to adore 
women and kind of you know look after and protect them um it becomes a bit more problematic and i think particularly what's interesting is that there's a um when we learn a little bit about the coven in the film that she's part of what we learn is that she that she and the other kind of younger witches are kind of initiated into the coven by having sex with the um on the altar um with the um kind of high priest um so I think in in some ways that's kind of interesting to sort of, re, you know, think about the way in which the film just in that little moment kind of talks about how, you know, kind of there is this, you know, kind of a vision of um, female empowerment, but it is one that is ultimately kind of managed by a kind of patriarchal force. And for some reason in my head now, I'm thinking about the Spice Girls and Simon Cowell. Um, (laughs) but you know in in Uh, terms of that that it's you know kind of the women feel like they're in charge and they're empowered but actually the whole thing is sort of being slightly stage managed for them by um you know the high priest has a whole um scene where he talks about the empowering nature of dancing yes yes and um I, i think there's a lot going on in the movie and i think that it's um it's probably a difficult film to grasp immediately Certainly when I saw the trailer for it, I thought, what the hell is this? This is awful. I mean, I could tell it was being deliber- it was deliberately very stylized, but it, the trailer, you can't see how it works from just watching the trailer. However, for me, it, it comes together very quickly in the actual film. And I, I think that the, the, the kind of heightened acting style, I know that um, the, the, the performance style and the visuals have kind of been compared... Uh, not least by the director herself to Douglas Sirk, who directed quote unquote women's pictures in the forties to the sixties, I think, in Hollywood. I've never seen any of his films, so I can't directly comment. But I think that there were. Um, I remember reading the kind of Brechtian interpretations of those films, yeah. su- suggesting that the kind of uh, what we what's often called melodrama. The kind of melodramatic styling of them is actually kind of heightens it all, so that or distances the audience from it a little bit, so that they can be a bit more critical about the things happening in the story and to the yeah. characters. And I think that happens here in that the, although there is a, a bit very early on where when um, Trish and Elaine go for their first coffee together, Elaine kind of exposes her philosophy about men, and Trish responds with. I think she says you've been brainwashed by the patriarchy. Yes. <laughs> um, but apart from that line, yeah. there isn't really explicit criticism no. of, of anything anyone's doing, but the, 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 the kind of heightened nature of it does make you think, hmm, I'm not yeah. quite sure. It's like, the and obviously kind of themes of the female empowerment, like um, obviously uh, um, Elaine is quite empowered in the sense that she can use her... Um, appearance and also her witchcraft abilities to do things that she wants to do but but they kind of go too far i don't think she really wants to kill guys no that just sort of happens um whereas the other women in the film we assume that the other women who are witches we assume are not going around accidentally killing like yeah loads of men um and their, their, their stories the, would just be much more positive wouldn't they you know um yeah yes well I hope yeah. So. yeah yeah i mean it's it's i think it's it's an interesting i mean so so much kind of going on because the film doesn't offer a kind of clear ultimately i don't think it offers a kind of a criticism of elaine as the kind of monstrous um 
it's it's interesting you know i was reading something about talking about how the film you know kind of very much um you know it is about you know kind of being a kind of an abuse or a survivor of abuse and how elaine you know kind of that you know you can view it elaine in those terms is that she's just kind of in many ways regurgitating the kind of um some of the conditions of her original abuse um well it's kind of clear that she's damaged isn't it she's not quite connecting on a real level with people around her um but she is coming out of this kind of abusive background and and that's the way that she has survived maybe by is by kind of developing those attitudes which you know she might not even be really aware of i think there's something very performative about her um i mean there's something very performative about everyone in the film but especially about elaine um it's like she she's putting on she's often putting on a performance of how she i think would like to behave or would, yeah. would like to think is the right way to do things and or what life is like but um but you start to realize that that's actually kind of a veneer yeah which is why i was um, thinking that it's interesting in a sort of kind of age of instagram type kind of you know um context in that the film is you know kind of about i think these are um kind of annabella's words when she talks about the film being about love desire and narcissism um you know and 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 i think that idea of kind of of women sort of struggling you know kind of uh particularly in the kind of 20th century in a kind of media age of, you know, um, negotiating a kind of a level of self, self-love that is acceptable and a level of empowerment that is acceptable within a kind of, you know, wider society, particularly when there's, you know, kind of so, much, so many economic forces that are about kind of making us feel crap about ourselves so that we buy products and we, you know, kind of, you know, buy into diet plans and, you know, kind of whatever. Um, and the, you know, kind of the, the kind of age of the selfie is you know in some ways you know kind of horrendous and vacuous but in other ways is about kind of giving women you know always empowering women to take control of their own image um which can be a really positive thing but then also you know kind of also you know kind of there are these standards particularly on social media of you know, okay we're just going to present this particular kind of vision of ourselves to the world and that i think is often you know kind of elaine is sort of enacting that idea of you know it's it's the vision that that other people see and that other people find attractive and her audience you know as far as she sees it are men you know that's and that's how she she gets her power or is able to kind of you know exploit her kind of feminine you know kind of um aesthetic qualities in order to kind of get what she thinks she wants but of course you know what's interesting is it's never quite what she wants no, I think it's it's maybe a lesson about how far you take that kind of thing as well. Or not, you know, just an invitation to think about how far you take yeah. thinking about that. Because I think it, it's a really nice image that Elaine has beautiful hair, mm-hmm. but she wears a wig. Yes. To make yeah, her yeah, hair look longer. Yeah, because, you know, we're constantly fed this idea that we're not good enough, you know, regardless of how, you know. Um, and, it, yeah, it's, it's, you know, absolutely. I think that's a really... A really interesting kind of an astute kind of little you know kind of symbol of who she is as a character is that you know she's she is beautiful anyway but she feels the need to kind of you know kind of heighten that through these kind of levels of artifice and, yeah, and just the fact that she feels that she needs to use magic yeah um to make men fall in love with her because um because the film's called the love witch and she kind of I think more or less introduces herself as a witch right at the beginning yep. in a voiceover. Yep. 
Um, and I think you might even see her um, doing spells and things before she has any interaction with men. Yeah. I'd kind of just read it that she she has some kind of magic around her, uh, which draws men towards her. But it could just be that she's just very attractive. Yeah. Because, I mean, there is that scene near the start of the film where she meets the first man. Spoilers for about half an hour into the film. The first man she ends up killing. Yeah. She sees Wayne on the other side of um, the park from where she's sitting on a bench talking to another woman. And she seems to just look at him. And he, he just kind of returns the gaze and immediately walks over. He, he just detaches himself from the other woman without a word or anything, you know. Yeah. Um, and I kind of read that as... She has this kind of hypnotic power, but but yeah, maybe she's just completely attractive. But it's interesting again; she's just got these levels of. Um, she feels like she needs to do so much. Yeah. I suppose we should yeah. mention, in case for the benefit of people who have never heard of this movie, um, it was made in 2016. Um, and like I said, it seems to be vaguely set. Well, you'd think it was kind of vaguely set in the 60s or the maybe the early 70s. But there are modern cars in it, and people do use mobile phones, yeah. which I think is just um, they just the director just realised that they didn't have the budget to get rid of all the modern cars and to yeah, I mean cars. certainly so so they just fudged it a bit. There are um, yeah, and I I think that's fine. I think I think most of the aesthetic, the photography, the performance style, the design is so perfect. Um, that I instantly, I mean, as someone who who likes films from that period, I just totally fell in love with yeah. it. Actually, it made it made me think actually, kind of visually, and then and then kind of thematically about the Stepford Wives. Um, yeah, you know, I think it yeah, has I, has some interesting so. kind of you know resonances with that. Um, and yeah, for for me, I kind of would put it in the same period. But I think um, it's interesting you sort of talking about not having a budget and stuff because um, there there are and again interesting follow up. Um, there are some really interesting uh, and 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 uh, dramatic stories from um, from the director about how she feels like her the crew wasn't entirely helpful in the production of this film. In fact, at times they were just really obstructive um so yeah but so i think that's a you know, part of the wider mythology of the film itself um and what makes it slightly more interesting but uh yeah there are some stories right i'll, I'll have to read off about that just before we move on to the next uh film i just want to say um obviously i've i've, I've indicated that i really enjoy the, the love witch um it's one of those strange kind of multi-genre movies I think you could get away with saying that it's not a horror film. Yeah. Um, it's a kind of supernatural drama. It's also sometimes described as a comedy, um, and I think it is very funny, but I think it's not a comedy because the story's not funny. No. You know, I think that's why I asked you to kind of describe the plot, because I think the story's basically a thriller, because she um, she ends up kind of accidentally killing uh, men, and she then has to cover that up and that get there's a police investigation but it it's very funny because of all the ways in which the 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 film aesthetically recreates um the performance style and uh, and the and everything about kind of very very stilted sort of melodramatic uh movies from the the, the 60s i guess and and um you know yeah, aesthetic touches of Hitchcock and other things, and I think all that stuff to some listeners that might 
be a complete turn off because you know um, it almost sounds like a person is making a, deliberately making a film badly almost. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly but, a le- uh, level of pastiche, isn't there? To uh, you know, of of kind of B movie and you know low you know, willingly or not, kind of low-budget, not terribly well-constructed films. But I think, you know, it's part of the, you know, kind of the postmodern quality of the the film. Um, For me, it's just all part of the kind of the fun of the film. You know, it isn't terribly horrific, I agree. Um, But, you know, it's, I think it's, yeah, it's just, it's it's a, a kind of... It's it's a little bit of a kind of folly, I think, as a film. Um, even though it has some, you know, kind of interesting, complex things to say, I think aesthetically and kind of stylistically, it's just it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I do think it's real really fun. I would advise anybody to not watch the trailer. Watch the first ten minutes or so of the film, and if you find yourself getting into it, go with it. Um, if you don't, I just really turn it off. It. <laughs> yeah, exactly, um, um, and. It, the thing that it kind of reminded me of, uh, which is prob- I don't know if that was one of uh, Annabella's kind of touchstones, was that I-, I love the kind of 1970s American TV movie yeah. and shows like Columbo. Yes. And, and and it kind of felt like that. And, you know, there was a lot of um, 70s TV horror um, made, which is very hard to be because of network regulations, very, very tame. You know, no violence, no sex. Not much horror, really. But sometimes the results were quite interesting. And there's movies like Curtis Harrington's The She-Creature, which this reminded me of particularly. um, And early Steven Spielberg films like um, Something Evil. Yeah, Um, which was was made for TV, wasn't it, as well? Yes, and uh, and Duel, which was released theatrically, was made as one of those TV movies first, but... Universal thought that it was good enough to, to to put out as a film. So, you know, there's some really interesting stuff going on in that kind of strand, and and I think that's... that uh, The aesthetics of The Love Witch kind of really reminded me of that. So very soon, because I like those things, I felt very comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of relaxed and then and, and found it... You know, it's... There's a certain archness, there's, um, which is funny, but also... I don't think it stops the film being interesting, and I don't think it stops you getting involved with the story either. No. Um, so I'd I'd really recommend it to anyone who, um, you know, that certainly to people who have um, an affinity for for older kind of movies um, and are interested in the, uh, the supernatural themes and the feminist themes. There's there's lots to recommend. Yeah. it, Basically, it's really yeah. well done. I think it's certainly it's a film that if you if it, if you like it, it bears quite a few different viewings i think when i think you know it's the kind of film i've i've only seen a couple of times but you know kind of i'm i'm deeply aware that when i watch it there's just so much going on that it's it's difficult to just take it all in sometimes i think you know all different ways of looking at it so yeah yeah i look forward to uh, introducing more people to Mm -hmm. it so what's next revenge or well i mean in in some ways i'd like to talk about talk about them together because i think they stand really nicely next to each other and in many ways they're about the same thing so 
I think that actually that that's a, it's a kind of interesting you know they're an in, interesting pair. So just to kind of vague brief introduction. So the Babadook um, Jennifer Kent um, based off a um, based off oh my English based on uh, I know. Yeah, no, well that's American English. Yeah. It's fine. Based on uh, her kind of uh, a short that she made um, previous to the film. Yes, yeah, two thousand and five's Monster. Yeah. So the the film is is kind of loosely a, a, it's more psychological horror. It doesn't have you know for for horror it's very much it's about atmosphere. It doesn't have a very high body count, um, and it very much is a kind of you know more kind of symbolic metaphorical representation of a mother um, dealing with grief. Um, <clears throat> After you know, although very frightening. Oh yes, I no, uh, very effective, and 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 I mean, I, I didn't get to see it in the in the cinema. I'd love to have seen it in the cinema actually, but it was one of those that you know, kind of, I slightly avoid. I like you know because of what I, I talked about at the beginning about the way in which the kind of horror has, you know, my my you know becoming a parent has shifted my experience of horror. It was actually one that I'd avoided for quite a long time, just because I'm I was just I knew what it was about. I knew it was about a mother and 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 you know her her young son, and I I for a while just thought I'm not sure that I'm you know kind of strong enough to do this one just yet um so it was only a film that I kind of I had to, I had to kind of do because we were, we were going to do it at work um so I kind of had to you know put my big girl pants on um and, and watch it and it was utterly kind of just you know it was such an intense experience so well handled so well played um very atmospheric yes I think know. it might have been too much to take in the cinema, yeah actually. yeah um yeah so very very just I mean that that the I, I love horror that just engenders a really quiet and building sense of dread um which this film does beautifully for the majority of its kind of you know of its runtime um and um yeah and then prevenge um so prevenge is uh yeah 2016 made by um kind of writer director um first time feature filmmaker alice lowe who's also an actress yes I, i'd like to say about alice lowe um She's, although, as you said before, these are all first-time features for these directors, I think she's the only one of them who had written, previously written a yes, feature film, the, yeah, which was Sightseers, yeah. directed yeah, by yeah. Ben Wheatley. Yeah. Um, yeah so um, she, but this is her first directorial yes. Um So uh, what's interesting about Prevenge is that it's uh, it's a film about, again, a, a, not a, well, a, a pregnant woman who is, um, had lost her husband, um, uh, in, in a tragic accident. So they, you know, the Babadook and um, Prevenge have that in common. As in the, both films sort of start with the man, you know, kind of, you know, the husband having tragically kill, been killed. Um, and about how both, you know, they kind of both deal with it and they deal with it in very different ways. Um, but both, you know, kind of really emphasising the idea of kind of women as mothers um, and, you know, the kind of, you know, how the, the kind of monstrous elements are in both cases, reflections of elements of, you know, of them and their emotional experiences. Um, Prevenge has a much higher body count. Um, I was counting earlier. One, two, three, four, five, six possibly seven <laughs> not to give any spoilers of the end but possibly seven uh no eight or <laughs> eight eight if you you count the, the the one that 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 um uh ruth who um alice Lowe plays um kind of is not responsible for which is the kind of the inciting death of her her husband at the beginning of the film um 
But uh, again, also notable though, because in the film is not only about a kind of woman who is, you know, kind of uh, quite heavily pregnant, but um, Alice Lowe directed the film when she was also heavily pregnant, um, which, you know, have it having two children, um, I, um, you know, kind of, there's part of me that's like, yeah, pregnant women can do, do like stuff that mo- everybody can do. But I'm also completely in awe the fact that she, you know, kind of directed this film and, and directed herself in this film you know kind of quite violent physical kind of film um at you know kind of however far along that she was um and what's quite lovely is that the ba- the baby the spoilers that we see at the end of the film is actually her baby Oh, oh, so that's quite okay. nice. It's like oh, <laughs> I, I, I wonder about the kind of future conversations between her as, as, as mother and her daughter about you know how this <laughs> how this film sort of fits into you know the kind of uh, you know a kind of low becoming a mother. Um, yeah, so they're very different films, and one you know kind of one is a, a, a kind of comedy slasher. Prevenge has kind of those elements, um, and uh, and and the Babadook has no comedy in it at all. I would argue, no. so totally and, um, very very different. On the surface, it's like a ghost story stroke monster movie, um, because the mother, played by Essie Davis, fears that this creature called the Babadook uh, is that's in her son's storybook. It is real and and is coming for yes. him. I think. Yeah, or it's, them. It's a fair few years yeah. since I've seen yeah. it. Although I did recently watch Monster, which is a, a different take on yeah. the same idea. Yeah, and I think it was you know is that ultimately the kind of and it's, it's difficult to have a conversation with that about this film without kind of doing the spoiler thing. But the 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 way that the film kind of resolves itself, so having you know spent an awful lot of time kind of building this idea that the the kind of Babadook is this kind of external force that wants you know kind of wants to you know kind of cause. Um, Amelia, the kind of the central character, and her son Samuel to suffer. Um, that what we kind of we end up with is this idea that that she that in some way the kind of Babadook was a reflection of her of her grief, um, and that that she, it's a kind of grief that she has to kind of come to terms with, um, and you know, and, and so the kind of film ends rather strangely for horror films or unexpectedly actually kind of ends in quite a happy place where she she's able to kind of deal with her grief um and be a good mother which is what's where we kind of get to the interesting kind of kind of points about the kind of the the, you know kind of monstrous feminine because the film so clearly builds on the idea that 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 um that the babadook you know um is kind of a symptom of uh um uh, Amelia's inability to deal with her own emotional kind of fallout and her own emotional state to the point where she, you know, kind of is neglecting her son. She's making bad decisions for the both of them. Um, and that, that, you know, very much the kind of horror of the film is, you know, kind of predicated on the idea that she she's becoming a bad mother. And that's where we get that, you know, kind of the, that idea of the more. Yeah, yeah. I think that's why, you, you you know, you can um, situate the Babadook within discussions of the monstrous feminine, even though literally on the surface the monster isn't no. um, the mother, but but she is also the monster. Yeah. I mean, she she is... The Babadook itself is, um, is, is a very frightening thing, but then just as frightening is this kind of wrathful force of this 
uh, mother who is unable to love her own yeah. son. And, uh, and you know, you do feel that from the son's point yeah, of view. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, that, you know, there were some really kind of, again, we don't see any sort of physical abuse, but there's kind of, there's, there's you know, kind of clear signifiers of neglect. There's a bit where, you know, kind of he, he you know, she's finally managed to get some sleep. So this sleep deprivation is kind of part of the, the kind of horror of it. She's finally able to get some sleep and, and we kind of have, the, there's a moment in the middle of the film where he comes in and just says, you know, kind of, I'm hungry, mommy. Um, and, and she just, you know, kind of, she rises out of her bed and just tells him to eat shit. Um, you know, like with uh, full vengeance, you know, kind of, and um, you know, and I think it's it, again as a mother, it's interesting, kind of watching because it's you know, I don't tell my children to eat shit, um, but that kind of you know that the way in which. Um, and this is interesting, actually, because in, in Prevenge, um, kind of character of Ruth talks about pregnancy and motherhood being like a human sacrifice, that there's a kind of, you know, in parenting, there's a kind of, a, you know, you have to put your child's needs before your own always, um, or at least, you know, until the point at which they, you know, kind of are you know they've left the nest um and so there is you know kind of <laughs> in that moment of of uh, amelia kind of you know telling samuel to eat shit i kind of uh, there was an empathy there <laughs> with her and so right. she she's finally asleep and getting some t- you know you know time for herself and kind of ability to start to process stuff and and or at least that's how i would see it um and yet and but there's no, you know so there, there was it's a there's a kind of is an interesting kind of way in which the film uses um you know kind of or at least spoke to me as a parent but what's interesting is that you know kind of jennifer kent when she wrote and directed this you know wasn't her parent herself so it's some or whilst it's being made from a feminine perspective about a mother it's somewhat kind of being you know it's outside of that experience rather than being you know somebody who's you know unlike alice lowe kind of writing uh, you know and kind of producing a film as a That's pregnant true. woman I mean, I get the impression that having seen the original short yeah, film which um, i haven't i might add but the, it's on YouTube yeah. if anybody wants to check it out. It's called Monster. Um, and it was made in 2005. The The Babadook wasn't released as a full feature film until 2014. No. Obviously, I think clearly, Jennifer Kent spent a long time just thinking about the theme. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, fe- the, the movie is a very much an elaboration yeah. on the, the, the idea of the short. And the short doesn't have anything in it about grief or anything like that she's it's about a single mother but the, there isn't anything about why the father's not there and and i also know that um essie davis who plays the the character in the film she's not in the short but she um she had known jennifer kent they were they were at drama school at the same time and i think that i think there might have been a certain amount of i, th- I think jennifer kent might have been thinking about essie davis for a long time, yeah, um, and kind of developing the role to her strength as an yeah. actress as yeah. well. So I, think that's I mean, she's she, it's a remarkable performance and totally compelling, and she's absolutely the centre of that film. I think for me, what's kind of interesting for that kind of again the kind of monstrous feminine perspective is the way that the film kind of ultimately, um, and I think Prevenge does this slightly in the same way, which is um, the 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 kind of equilibrium of the kind of horror is able to be kind of, you know, overcome, not the equilibrium, but will be able to be kind of brought back in the end because, um, you know, kind of uh, Amelia is finally able to kind of draw on, you know, kind of 
on that kind of ideal of the kind of the protective. I mean, she's in the very again. Sorry, spoilers. In the end of the film, she becomes like a kind of mother bear, you know, as in you know, kind of protecting her young and you know, kind of standing up against the kind of threat and rejecting sure. it. And I think by the way, but um, yeah, no, it was it just sort of struck me that that the kind of the film, you know, kind of locates that kind of uh, kind of right ending in the idea that she's able to become a good mother in the terms that, you know, kind of, um, you know, that we kind of, we hegemonically um, kind of hold as being the kind of things that women should do. So she, you know, she works and she collects him and she holds a birthday party for him and, um, and she kind of cuddles him and, you know, um, and she, you know, ultimately is a kind of, you know, she's able to, she deals with her own emotional stuff in order to become a better mother for him. Um, and it's not the revenge ends in the same way, but the you know kind of revenge ends with the kind of it has it has quite an open end, but it it ends with this this kind of point of kind of making the right choice for yes, the child. She has a, a moment a moment of choice. Yes, she? and yeah. she makes the right cho- choice for the child, um, despite what's going on for her. Um, in a way that you know we kind of we're we're, we're you know we, we because of what's happened in the film I don't think the the film kind of gives an expectation that that the, the you know the protagonist is going to have her own happy ending where she gets to have her you know her her child and you know um, but she makes the right choice for the child. Um, well, we should say that the kind of premise of the film, in case people don't know, um, is that she is talking to her unborn daughter yes. throughout the film, and and it's the daughter in her mind, the voice of the daughter, which prompts the killing. Yes. Which I thought was really interesting because it gives us this sense of, um, that the, the kind of the, the monstrosity is somehow external, not, well, not external, but it's not, you know, it's not Ruth. It's not the, the, you know, kind of the, the main character that it's this, this, um, you know, kind of other being, which obviously is, is existing within her body. And it's, you know, the kind of film kind of conceives pregnancy, and I think quite rightly so, <laughs> as sort of a kind of body horror. Um, <laughs> you know, so... I, the, I'll let you make that Yeah, well, no, it, I mean, <laughs> it, you know, kind of... It, it, I think it's absolutely right and fair to describe pregnancy as body horror. It's, you know, this massive physical change. Um, but, you know, both kind of physically and emotionally and, you know... Um, and so the kind of the you know the kind of the voice of the baby talking to us you know essentially kind of you know represented as being sort of demonic and kind of you know instructing her to kill, um, and her you know kind of rather love I say lovely and I often use the term lovely in relation to horror, um, the kind of lovely moment at the end is her realization that actually that all that the whole film she spent kind of thinking that this is you know that that voice was actually not her. And it's her realisation that actually the monstrosity is her, is in her. It's not something external, which is kind of the reverse of what, you know. So so in the Babadook, um, you know, kind of Amelia rejects that kind of monstrous element of her, her grief and her selfish, destructive quality and deals with it and pushes it out um, and get, or gives it very kind of clear parameters to exist within. Um, whereas when Prevenge, it's kind of the opposite. It's like the, the you know, the kind of the, 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 the character that the monstrosity was located in, the baby, once it is physically out, it's no longer the source of monstrosity. And that actually, that provokes this realisation from within, you know, the kind of protagonist of going, actually, no, that was me. <laughs> you know, that, that voice was actually me rather than the child. Um, 
Um, and Which makes yeah, sense. And, and it actually is uh, Alice Lowe's voice. As yes, well, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, yeah, which you know kind of makes the whole thing kind of slightly more more perfect. And I suppose in some ways it's that that then an embracing of you know those kind of slightly more destructive qualities, which you know kind of again in terms of you know Western ideologies around women, you know kind of we're often there's an ideal of being kind of meek and gentle and kind and selfless and all those kind of things. Where whereas you know kind of Ruth. Um, you know, kind of in some ways kind of rejects that. Um, well, not in some ways, in a lot of ways rejects that, but but not least in the ending of the film. Um, yeah, so and I thought that was kind of, it's an interesting kind of, you know, slightly different take on the same thing. Although the other thing, the slight bugbear with both films is that they both kind of put the idea that, that kind of women's disequilibrium um, kind of starts with the loss of their man, which I have a slight issue with, you know, um, despite being very interesting films in a variety of kind of ways through a kind of feminist lens, I'm slightly annoyed that that's that's our starting point. You know, I think the problem with a lot of uh, tropes in cinema storytelling is that they are tropes and they get done again and again. Yeah, and if there were lots of films that 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 dealt with. Uh, women's perspective on yeah. grief and childbirth, but and things like that that didn't include the loss of a man, it would be fine for these two yeah. to do that. Yeah, but it, yeah, it's just because right. it's yeah. quite rare um, for any kind of films to tackle this this material like this anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you it's, know, don't, don't... it's a slowly changing yes. landscape, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It is, and I think that they're two really interesting films that kind of deal with those with that you know kind of similar theme of of grief and how it affects you know the kind of you know parent child relationship or mother child relationship, um, you know, but although in very very different ways. Um, yeah, yes, for, I mean, and I, I like the pairing that you've made of them because I hadn't realised how similar they are thematically, um, but they're very different films um, in every other way, really. You know, obviously, um, Prevenge is a British film, uh, The Babadook's Australian. Um, Prevenge is low budget and done very quickly. Um, and you can tell. Yes. I think it might have been shot on video. I think some of it's on film and some of it's on video. And and it's kind of, it's set in, quote, a city. Yes. It was basically filmed, bits of it were filmed in Cardiff, Cardiff yeah. in London. <laughs> yeah. So they just kind of mashed it all together. And I think the reason all that happened was because, because of her previous work. Um, an opportunity came up for Alice Lowe to go, to, to basically direct a film, but it would have to be fairly low budget and she her first response was well I, I can't I'm pregnant at the moment can it not happen in a few months and and they basically said no the money won't be here in a few months so she just went oh right well I better write something that I can do now then and 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 obviously she elected to kind of use the pregnancy rather than it being a problem 
during the shoot, she used that as the focus of the story. So it she's a hero <laughs> to say. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a, a scene. I mean, the, the whole I mean, one of the things I sort of read about the film is is that how the, the, it's essentially it's kind of like a series of sketches, which it kind of it kind of is. It's very episodic. Um, but there's yeah. um, which is a great way to approach. The yeah, I actually, film, I, I, I really liked I liked that as a sort of kind of yeah as a format for it, and I thought it really worked really well. It's kind of a series of two hander scenes. Yes, yeah. So the scene the scene with Ella. <laughs> who um is uh yeah um, one played by, by um, um oh Katie oh uh, no no I've, I've, actress who's yes. in the witch yes yes whose name escapes me and that's and that's terrible because she's absolutely brilliant at this and um she's a fantastic actress um yeah, yeah so um the scene with Ella which you know kind of is sort of you know she the, Ruth in, invents a, a range of ways of sort of kind of getting these particular characters on their own so that she can exact revenge um it seems to be for a job interview um and what's interesting again this is you know maybe you kind of comment on um again it kind of internalized misogyny and and, and kind of patriarchal structures that you know it's a kind of a high Powered businesswoman. We assume lawyer um, or solicitor um, interviewing um, Ruth, who, who's also pretending to be a solicitor, um, or, or she might be. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, and and the that um, uh, the Ella character says that she, you know, essentially won't hire. Um, hire Ruth because of her pregnancy, um, and then she talks about, oh, you know, you should you should just get the whole pregnancy thing out of your system, like that. You know, <laughs> that's right. in terms of the kind of world of work that that's how kind of you know motherhood is seen is that it's only going to affect you for the point at which you're you know kind of having your baby <laughs> or you're pregnant, and then and then you, you you're fine, you can work normally. Um, it's you know, and so again, so often that you know seems to be the kind of case that with you know kind of women are, um, you know you kind of particularly in certain kind of sectors assume to be you know be able to sort of run completely normally as soon as you've had your child um so, so yes, maybe this yeah, yeah but uh, you know which is you know obviously not at all true so um, it's almost like they say we we can give you maternity leave what else do you want yes exactly and the fact that you know that kind of that Lowe's own baby is in the film at the end you know obviously meant that they went back and shot stuff when when um the, the you know when when the baby was 10 days old 10 days old so you know that's not like there was a she had a huge amount of time um or at least you know you went back into that a little bit i mean i don't know but uh yeah it's it's a, it's an interesting kind of film um made from you know from somebody in a, in a rather you know kind of unique position for a filmmaker to be in um at that particular point and also shout out to Kyvan Novak also in this film who you know doing an, a non-comedic performance from him which is you know kind of you know so I'm so used to seeing him play you know kind of great and but ridiculous parts that it's always really nice to sort of see him as uh, you know slightly more kind of straight on. Well I suppose it's worth saying that Revenge um, you know like the films of of Ben Wheatley has comedy overtones and it uses a great many comedy actors and combines them with the kind of familiar kind of grimy aesthetic um, that's familiar from a lot of British movies and British comedies in particular. Yeah, and British horror though as well. But I think also there's there's that there's a, a remarkable amount of pathos that kind of sense of kind of human, just kind of human. Not tragedy, but also kind of compassion in it. So there's a lovely, lovely little bit where I say lovely bit. <laughs> so there's the, the scene with DJ Dan, where <clears throat> who is a 
horrific character and I think actually there's interesting I was thinking about this yesterday that there's a kind of a resonance between DJ Dan and Saeed um, the pimp from A Girl Walks Home in that you know both these guys bring women home that they don't know with absolutely no expectation that anything is going to be you know uh, like there's no threat you know at all in bringing either of these two women and of course they you know they, they both discover that perhaps they should be slightly more cautious um, in the end yes I mean the damage that is inflicted upon DJ Dan is, uh, let's say, at the very least, symbolic. Yes, it certainly is. Yes, although the the thing that kind of makes the whole DJ Dan thing sort of slightly more poignant is that the 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 kind of the intrusion of his um, mother, who we assume has dementia, and then she, after um, Ruth has, has dispatched D, DJ Dan, um, the mother kind of comes back into the room, um, and you know Ruth puts her to bed and kisses her before she leaves, and like there's that slight, slight tension, isn't there, with horror, which is you're going, oh, that she's a witness, is she's going to do something horrible to her, but she doesn't she just you know kind of is kind and you know kind of and puts her back to bed and you know kind of that's a that's a really I've, I've just you know i find that unexpectedly kind of tender moment for horror you know particularly so yeah it was, it was quite lovely i think the main thing i want to conclude about both revenge and um the babadook is that um i've only seen each of them once and i, I enjoyed them very much um, they're fantastic movies, but talking about them in the depth that we have um, has made me realise the extent to which they're worth thinking about uh, and that they would bear re-watching. So I'd not only recommend them um, to anyone looking for a, a good, entertaining movie to watch one night, I'd also recommend um, you know film students and anyone to take a closer look at them and to use them as examples of really inventive, thoughtful filmmaking. The different budget levels of the different films um, is instructive as well there. Final, kind of final point on the, the way which I, I thought was interesting and a similarity between both Prevenge and The Babadook is that both, they both kind of incorporate kind of images of um, earlier horror into their kind of landscapes um, in that they both, you know, kind of are, you know, using, I think, I think I might be wrong on this, but I think the Babadook uses a kind of, you know, Georges Méliès kind of early kind of films as, as she's watching kind of stuff on TV at late night. And then, um, and then in Prevenge, and I don't, I'm not sure if it was something was shot for the film or something that it, it that, that, that is just that I don't recognise the reference, but there's a you know kind of a repeated image of a, a kind of very vampish um, kind of you know kind of female. Um, I want to say demon, but you know it's you know she's kind of a repeated image, and it's one that comes from Ruth watching TV, um, and you know it's a, a sort of image of of a kind of more. Um, you know, kind of classic representation of women in horror. So I think it's interesting that both of the films use those, you know, as kind of touchstones to kind of play their kind of threat off. Well, I mean, I do think it's interesting and useful for any horror movie or any movie in any genre which is deliberately taking steps beyond the usual limits of the genre and changing the genre somewhat um, to still employ symbolism um, or referencing from uh, earlier forms of the genre because the audience will recognise that and will go along with the changes if they um, if they can see things which make them feel a little comfortable to start with. They're more likely to 
follow the changes um and certainly when it comes to like subverting tropes in horror like like the way that you might want to subvert the representation of women um it's a good idea to um to show that you're aware of the way that women have previously been represented in those movies i mean i suppose you could feasibly um accuse it to use a, a kind of modern buzzword you could accuse it of lampshading um a certain amount of monstrous feminine tropes by including older versions of that image in the movie but yeah no i just i wonder if in some ways it's a very subtle kind of lampshading that you know by including those kind of references you know the film is sort of saying okay we we know what we're doing here and this is you know but this is a slightly different version of those things yeah and i think that's absolutely fine because at the end of the day to me um, subtle lampshading is just storytelling really you know you have to um, include little pointers for the benefit of the audience that help them follow the story and sometimes you might need to um, underline certain points to make sure that they pick up on them and I think that's absolutely fine you know yeah well it's about kind of plugging the story in isn't it to kind of the text into a wider context um you know, so that they did, you know, but we know how to locate it. Um, and particularly those of us who are kind of inclined that way, that those are really helpful kind of references to kind of think about the film in comparison to, um, or films, yeah. Uh, so, Kirsty, we're running out of time, unfortunately. So, um, I should ask you have you any other major thoughts that you want to share about any of the four films that we've watched today? Um, I think. I mean, I've I've really enjoyed um, kind of thinking about these films. I mean, what we'll what say is that for for my for my job teaching film at A level, um, the kind of uh, Girl Walks Home and The Babadook are two of the films that we kind of look at um, alongside each other. So I'm kind of you know really kind of plugged into those two particularly. But I think that you know when I was doing them, I couldn't help but think about the way in which the, kind of there are links to the you know Love Witch and Prevenge because of this you know kind of absence of you know female generated um horror um in you know in the kind of wider genre really i'm not saying that they don't you know there aren't they don't exist but but it's just you know that the sadly the kind of female stories um that are you know kind of originated by women directed by women and you know kind of um, and done everything else annabella um <laughs> you know that it's not sadly we're not kind of you know um they're underrepresented i feel in horror and i'd like to see more of it i think that's absolutely fair enough um they're certainly underrepresented but we have four really good examples of exciting new directors here um and hopefully they'll do lots of wonderful new work of course when it comes to new film directors the second film is always crucial um and most of these directors haven't had a second film yet and the second film is often in this slightly different genre or a completely different genre um, as the director kind of spreads their artistic wings. In fact, as an example of that point, Jennifer Kent has um, made a, her second film um, and it's it's not a horror film, it's um, a historical drama. Um, so it is moving somewhat away from um, from what she's done before. Although I, I hear it has very horrific elements. Uh, so I think it's called The Nightingale. Oh, yes, that's right. Um, as for Alice Lowe, I'm not sure what she's directing next, but she is terribly prolific as an actor and writer. 
um, and seems to have a folk horror sympathy going on. She um, she appeared in the radio, uh, the audio remake of Blood on Satan's Claw recently, um, and it is you know has a documentary interest in serial killers and things like that. So I do feel like um, her next work will continue to be dark, possibly somewhat comedic. Um, we'll have to see where she goes. Alice Lowe is also in a, a, a short film called Salt, which is a lovely genre piece. I have a slight connection to that because uh, Rob Savage, director, um, was as an ex-student of mine. Um, but she did some very fine work on that. So... Um, Yay. Yay, Alice. Keep going, Alice. I love you, Alice. <laughs> uh, I love Alice Lowe, too. Fantastic stuff. Kirsty, it's been a wonderful, wonderful chat. Thank you. It's been lovely. We'll keep an eye on all of these uh, new directors and hopefully, uh, well, we'll keep an eye on any new um, interesting filmmakers in the horror genre that come up as we go along with this podcast and hopefully we'll be seeing more work from these four and also from other exciting new female directors. For now though, as it were, we'll go back to the studio. Welcome back folks, this is Dan here with Kirsty and Stella doing our wrap-up. I hope you enjoyed the discussion of those four really interesting, highly recommendable films. Um, if you already know the films, um, I hope you found the discussion pretty insightful. And if you don't, then I hope that you are now inspired to go off and watch them, because you really, really should. Um, at the end of every episode, we always um, come up with some recommendations for the coming week, but a little bit before we do that, this week I wanted to just have um, a few moments to share some thoughts that I had after re-listening to our discussion about horror remakes from last week. Um, and this is probably the point where I should admit that Although I did write it in the notes, in the show notes for last week's episode, we didn't say it live on air, but the fact was that we recorded earlier in the day last week than we're usually used to, and um, um, I don't know about the two of you, but I was certainly less alert than usual. <laughs> um, Definitely. Um, yeah. I'd had less coffee. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, so therefore, uh, it took me listening back to the discussion again. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute. Um, I, I, I think I understand what I think now. Because <laughs> the, there was a bit at the end of the discussion, Stella, where you said, so um, what do you both think now about uh, remakes? Do you agree with me? And I was just like, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll, what I'll do now is I'll sum up my understanding of um, the kind of the broad gist you know you went into a lot of details which which we don't have to touch on again uh, it's all fascinating stuff and it's there for the listener to go back to and interest themselves in um but i think the broad gist of uh, covering um, a lot of what you said was basically you defended remakes on um i think two bases uh, one is um the kind of the the position of the, a remake as a part of uh, an expanding story world yeah. of um, kind of franchise movies. So you'll have a number of movies which continue the story or um, prefigure the original story or yeah. go off in a different direction, but you'll also have movies that kind of retell the original story in a different form. Um, and and all of that can kind of coexist kind of happily because yeah. the remake does uh, you know, literally doesn't 
overwrite the original film that it's remaking. It's yep. kind of always added on. Um, and, um, well, um, so I think that was kind of your broad argument. Uh, I mm -hmm. would divide that into two things, and I would say that on the one hand, the remake functions like... Um, something which i really appreciate which is the folk tradition of just retelling a story yeah um and uh, elaborating on it changing parts of it updating it making it reflect current concerns more um you know th that kind of tradition is really essential to storytelling um mm -hmm. and is most clearly seen in um like the stories that we know that have come down from folklore and that therefore have been told and retold for literally hundreds of years um yeah. so the, the the example that um comes straight to my mind is robin hood you know there's yeah. loads of stories of robin hood but and everybody kind of roughly knows the characters involved but in some stories just as an example you know in some stories uh, sheriff of nottingham is the the main villain in some stories guy of gisborne is the main villain mm -hmm. um so the, there was a, a film with patrick bergen that doesn't even have the sheriff of nottingham in um and and things like that and i think people like, like are happy with that level of variation um it's it still kind of contributes to the myth and uh, and nobody ever thinks Oh, I hate that version of Robin Hood. It's ruined Robin Hood forever for me because you know that there'll be another one probably it's within... ruined my childhood. Yeah, um, <laughs> within 12 months, you know. Um, and I think it makes sense to, to keep retelling stories like that. I think that's one of the things that we do as humans to understand the world is we look at the world around us and say, what if X character from folklore was around now? How would he or she react? Yeah. And... Um, you know, and it, and it helps us to understand our world. Um, so I think that's that's. I'm happy. I'm cool with that. Um, and the other justification that you have a kind of um, like Marvel Cinematic Universe type of um, expanding story world where there are loads of different stories um, that are related, but um, also also separate. I think that's fine as well, and I, I, I like both of those justifications. I will just say that um, the the area where I find it conflicts a bit with my desire for um, kind of clarity and um, my desire to be able to pigeonhole things, I suppose, is that it, it's when the two things overlap that I get confused and a bit um, uncomfortable, as in, you know, when there's a load of movies and you're not quite sure which one's our retellings of other films yeah. and which films connect to which f some some you know uh, so you made the perfect example which was the texas chainsaw massacre yeah. so it's you're not sure place, yeah. yeah and therefore any one film you you may be not sure immediately which of the other films it connects to if any yeah. of them um and therefore <laughs> what do you do with it and and, and um <laughs> that uh, i mean i, I it, i'm it doesn't bother me that sort of things exist but i as a audience member and a spectator i'm kind of it makes me feel a bit uh shifty i like to be <laughs> sure about what i'm dealing with and where i'm going and I, I did kind of touch on that last week and i think that maybe kind of modern modes of exhibition are uh leaning towards that not being a problem because people can easily access the relevant information but i'm, I'm not too sure i i think 
sometimes it, it can still be a bit confusing. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, and also as well, there's the point that the audience probably shouldn't have to go and find extra information to understand the film that they watch. And I think that's kind of relates to something Kirsty said last week when she asked me, do, do I think the audience should need to know everything or is it is the onus on the filmmakers to make sure that everything is there for you so that you understand where you are in a franchise or where you are in a in a remake or a retelling of a story and I think that's a valid point that you know you shouldn't have to go and do some research before you watch a film you should be able to just go and watch a film and enjoy the movie so I do I do get that and one of the things that I thought about after waking up a bit last week was um <laughs> both yourself and Kirsty both met, talked about the emotional attachment to films and how yeah. when they get remade it feels quite problematic and what I realised later on last Wednesday was well actually my favourite horror movie which is Scream hasn't had a remake so maybe if that got remade maybe I might um, change my mind <laughs> because how would I feel about that story being retold you know from the beginning i know there's been a tv adaptation version of it but it was different characters different you know different arrangement but if somebody took it upon themselves to remake scream you know i i'm sure i would feel that same emotional sort of disconnect and concern i suppose over the film over over the new version mm. so yeah i do i do agree but it's i guess i've not had my most emotional film attachment to a film you know, yeah. bothered yet. I think it also what's interesting is to think about the kind of how authorship might play into mm-hmm. those reactions. Like, how far do we feel that the kind of author's voice, whether that be writer or director, yeah. for the original incarnation of whatever is absolutely integral to its existence? I was just thinking when you talk about, well, what you know, how would I feel if they remade Scream? Mm. Um, and it's not not film per se, um, but I remember there were uh, some discussions a couple of years ago about the idea that they would reboot Buffy as a TV series. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it went, oh, oh no! <laughs> um, and and it strikes me that yeah, but it strikes me it's not the story that I'm particularly uh, attached to more kind of Joss Whedon's authorial voice yes. mm-hmm. which I felt it you know it, it disturbed me that they were contemplating rebooting it but you know kind of without his involvement or at least yeah. you know kind of in a slightly different way um, and so I think that's another factor that plays into you know that the way in which the audience is going to respond to um, uh, to a remake or reboot or whatever yeah, um, I've, I've forgotten about that. Um, I remember the name of the writer they attached to the, the proposed Buffy reboot, who was called Wit Anderson, Yeah, um, which led to Joss Whedon making this comment. Wow, they've got Wit Stillman and Wes Anderson to get together. <laughs> Two of my favourite filmmakers remaking Buffy. That's great. I'm behind it. Oh, wait a minute. Let me read that again. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but now they are doing a new Buffy, aren't they? But it's not a reboot, or is it? Um, you know, there's, there's supposedly going to be a new series of Buffy that was... At, at first it was announced as a remake, but Joss Whedon was on board not as a writer. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about this, Dan, because I've okay. chosen to sort of filter all Buffy-related reboot <laughs> things out of my general consciousness. Well, I, I, I don't know how far along it got, but it was about a yeah. year ago, um, right. and it was announced. And, uh, yeah, Whedon was on board, possibly because he had no power not to be. Um, mm. 
Uh, and at first it was talked about like it might be a kind of remake. Um, obviously, it would have to be if it was Buffy. Yeah. Um, it, w- yeah. it wouldn't be Sarah Michelle Gellar, so it, it needs to be a different take. We had daughter of Buffy. Well, um, <laughs> but potentially. But anyway, um, so that happened and it was very controversial. You know, people reacted. It ruffled some feathers, the announcement. And then there was a statement by Marty Noxon, who's one of the other writer-producers of the original Buffy series, where she said that she was very hostile to the idea of it at first, but then she heard it wasn't going to be um, a remake. It was going to be a new Slayer in the same universe. Right. Okay. But at the same time, I don't know where she heard that from, or, and and I, I don't have any further details. It's just it seemed to all go quiet. So. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kirsty's not having this at all. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no. Just, just leave me in the corner. I'll be okay eventually. Okay. <laughs> you can watch the old ones. They're all on all well, four yeah, at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. Ah, <laughs> uh, dear. Um, but hey, hey. <laughs> it's uh, actually. Can I just come back to yeah. Buffy? Because actually, I, I was thinking about this because I um, uh, listened to the beginning of uh, that episode um, this morning. Interestingly, um, and and I did. You know, you Dan, you made the point about um, that each generation needs, um, you know, a kind of or deserves a version of that of that story told to them. Yeah. And I thought to myself, oh, that's just like Buffy. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. In every generation. In every generation. Yeah. <laughs> in every generation. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of sense of uh, uh, you know, kind of generational. Um, uh, kind of obsolescence that is kind of built mm-hmm. into horror that you know we, we did touch on this last week that, we that sort of sense of you don't want as a, a young person watching horror you don't want to be scared by the same things that scared your parents you want to feel like your parents wouldn't touch your horror films with a barge pole that's true yeah 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 i mean i feel that i'm quite easily swayed in that i'd be fine with it not not that i'd necessarily watch it but if they if they brought out a new buffy series not called Buffy, um, but being about a Slayer who was a different Slayer, and Sarah Michelle Gellar turned up occasionally in it as as the older Buffy. Um, That's a long title, Dan. <laughs> well, yeah, but, yeah, yes, exactly. Um, but no, I'd be fine with that. I, so I need some kind of signifier in it that it's fictionally okay with the past. But that's just me. Um, you know, that's my kind of silly attachment. Um, there. I think um, it, I think it's silly. I think it's that's a you know kind of again that fan attachment, isn't it? That yeah. sense that you are watching something that's been kind of in some ways blessed by the previous incarnation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So whether that's the inclusion of producers and writers behind the scenes, or if it's the inclusion of bringing in characters from the older you know kind of version that that's that's the way in which you know kind of fans often make peace with those things isn't it yeah yeah yeah, that's true actually um there's a lot of precedent for that and um i mean it reminds me i don't think this so much has happened in horror but i think maybe it's it's going to happen more because we seem to have gone through this phase with remakes and reboots that um you reboot something um and like with Scream, sticking with the example of Scream, you know, yeah. the last Scream film, Scream 4, was not considered hugely successful. Um, so therefore, they kind of switched focus and made a TV series. Yeah. Um, which also wasn't a massive success. So now they've switched focus again and gone back to the original film series and gone, we're going to bring back the original characters 
um, and continue that universe. And that seems to be happening quite a lot to me. Mm. You know, that that happened with Halloween. That was going to happen with Aliens, yeah. but then didn't. That was going to happen with Robocop. Um, uh, it, so it just seems to be a trend at the moment. Um, yeah. But I, there was there's quite an interesting example of... Um, a movie kind of fictionally trying to bridge the remake kind of reboot divide, which, um, you know, that kind of I described where you have the two separate uh, approaches that you can take to the kind of uh, story world, the remake world. Um, and I think that happened in the X-Men franchise, you know, um, in, in the early 2010s when they... Uh, you, you already had the, the X-Men movies, which... Um, for, for ease, I will say the ones with Patrick Stewart as Professor mm-hmm. X, and then they started bringing out the ones with uh, James McAvoy as Professor X. But and then that movie X Men: Days of Future Past came out, which kind of quite ingeniously tied them all together, yeah. and, but also said that they're not tied together <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, uh, I remember being really impressed with the way it did that, um, and I haven't really watched any of the subsequent movies in that series because. I understand that uh, they all ignore the kind of hard work that Days of Future Past did in making everything work together and make sense. Um, and the subsequent films still don't work together and still don't make sense. Um, well, there's, the industrial reasons behind that is depending on which um, which media company is, is owns the intellectual property of the X-Men. So that's why it all got crossed together because, what was it, Fox bought the X-Men but none of the rest of the superheroes. So that's why they were over there making X-Men movies. Mm. Whereas you've got the Marvel Cinematic Universe who should have X-Men in it, but they don't because they don't own the IP to the to those superheroes. So now Disney own Fox, the Fox Channel, or is it the Fox Studios? There's a chance that the X-Men can cross over into the universe or something along those lines. You have to be more nerdy than me. But it's, it's, it, all, it all comes down to who owns... Yeah, yeah. Um, the same thing happened with Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. So, Sony, didn't it? Yeah. so that's you know, we should hopefully see the X-Men crossing over at some point. Yes, I, I think that Disney so, owns everything from Fox now, and you can certainly yeah. see all the old X-Men movies on Disney Plus. Yeah, yeah. so they should, course. and and the Simpsons obviously yeah. as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Though I, I was reading or came across something a couple of days ago, which was uh, you know, I think talking about oh well, well, we'll, we'll uh, sorry, I can't speak at the moment. Will Wolverine, see, that's difficult to say, uh, appear appear in um, Captain Marvel too? Yeah. So they're obviously already all oh, right. We're thinking, thinking about, about it. it. And it, yeah. you know, for, for Disney and MCU studios, it would be obviously financially good for them to include them. Yeah. Um, and if they do start to include them in the MCU, what are they then going to do about all the old X Men movies? Are they going to go back and redo them all again? Yeah, you yeah. You never yeah. know. Um, so I mean, yeah, probably they will. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> in Phase eighteen or whatever they've got planned yeah, at yeah. the moment. So. But yeah. again, the the kind of um, the multiverse thing does potentially give them uh, a way in, doesn't it? Yeah. In, in, yeah. But the X Men films, as they stand, are so um, spread across a load of different story threads that don't mm. necessarily connect. Again, it's like which ones do you include in the MCU and which ones not? I think that would be quite interesting. Mm. Um, so. It, it just comes down to the creativity and ingenuity of the writers, and I um, and I think that 
X-Men Days of Future Past was a, a really interesting um, example of kind of a writers tackling, like you say, external production context pressures yeah. and, and doing something creative with it that makes yeah. fictional sense as well as uh, production sense. Yeah, um, monetary sense. But I can't think of, a, of any other franchise that's done that, really, I think. You know, um, in in horror, certainly not in horror, but I can't think yeah. of any any anywhere. Um, Maybe the listeners can think of one. So answers on a postcard too. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Wherever we are, <laughs> po- posters are non angry comments uh, <laughs> yeah. on YouTube or wherever, and uh, we'll, we'll get back to you. So so yeah, th- so those are kind of my thoughts. Um, it, essentially, I just like being taken by the hand a little bit and guided. Um, through through the world and I don't mind stories recurring mm-hmm. but I, I just kind of like to know where I am um, and hopefully uh, you know we, we live in a world where well like you say um, uh, m- my instinctive feeling as well um, agreeing with what you st- said earlier Stella is that any one movie should just stand up by itself and you shouldn't have to do a load of additional research but mm at the same time maybe that's old fashioned and maybe the research is, is easy enough to do um, yeah. these days and some people like it I suppose yeah so um, but those those are my thoughts so I just wanted to to touch back on those and um, and see what you both how you both were reacting kind of after a, a, a week's reflection and additional coffee um, and things <laughs> to, to go back to that subject um, I think it's something that we will come back to because Remakes ain't gonna stop happening, whether it's TV That's or true. film or, or whatever. Think the you know the classic stories or the the ones that we love are gonna be continue to be reinterpreted for the big or small screen. So I'm yeah. sure that is gonna be something that will continue to come up. Um, okay, great. So I'm I'm glad we touched on that because that's. Uh, that's cleared my concerned soul a bit of, of <laughs> just some niggling thoughts. Um, all right, great. Well, um, I guess that brings us to the end of the episode then, which means it's time for our uh, recommendations for the week. Um, Kirsty, would you like to go first? I, I can do. Um, I have two recommendations, but they both have the same name. All right. Oh. One word. Rabbits. Okay. <laughs> so is, is one of them the actual animal rabbits? You know, no. you're just... Oh. No. Right. They're both horror <laughs> texts of varying types. Um, and I was only reminded of the second type after being reminded of the first type. So let me clear you on the, fir- on the first time why it's so sort of timely. Um, so uh, back in, I think, 2002, David Lynch made a series of um, eight short horror web films but because it's david lynch (laughs) they weren't like oh you know kind of overt conventional horror um so rabbits is uh, essentially is is he described it as a sitcom Right, um, a David Lynch uh, sitcom. <laughs> David Lynch sitcom, right, yeah. <laughs> um, which is you know. So there's a kind of fixed set, and there are three human people with rabbit heads. Right, um, and there's a candle after track, and a building sense of existential dread and horror. <laughs> Um, in the soundtrack um, and dialogue, which makes no sense. Um, and none of it makes any sense, but it is, it's been used by psychologists to invoke uh, a sense of existential crisis in participants of 
whatever study they used it for. Good Because um, it's really good at just making you go, oh my God. Um, so I think that like altogether, the um, the series was about 45 minutes in, in its whole runtime. Um, but last week, um, David Lynch on his uh, YouTube channel, which is, I think it's kind of Lynch, David Lynch Theatre, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, he posted uh, Rabbit One, which is like 15 minutes. So that rather suggests that there will be more right um and like Ooh. it doesn't like he's he's obviously kind of cut it up from its original format you can find like the original 45 minutes in various places around the internet um but it doesn't really matter that it's been sort of slightly reassembled because it doesn't make any sense anyway <laughs> um so right. but it's you know if you want you know got nothing to do for 15 15 minutes and you know if you're feeling quite buoyant and cheerful um <laughs> you want to watch rabbits right yeah you want to <laughs> watch rabbits um you know maybe whilst you're doing some ironing or you know i don't know petting <laughs> to a, make a ironing pet. worse yeah rabbits rabbits um, I, I did do this last week i did watch it i thought <laughs> i just need to remind myself of rabbits um and uh it was a thing and i'm glad that i did um wow. so that's there on youtube for free so rabbits one david lynch you can find it quite easily i'm sure daniel post a link yes yes oh, can't can you yes, yes and the second rabbits um is a, another podcast series um from the same people who made Ta- tanis so it sort of follows a similar kind of investigative journalist kind of narrative um but it's about a sort of underground um uh kind of yeah folkloric game a bit like left right game but not um which is just called rabbits um and yeah it's there the, the are again that lovecraftian sense of cosmic dread all the way through it um so that's available i think season, season one is finished season two is coming out soon um available on wherever you get your podcast from right okay cool so those are my 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 rabbity ones well, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. More rabbits than you can possibly cope with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, can I just ask, Kirsty, with the David yeah. Lynch uh, production, were you aware mm. of that when it was made and, and came back? you just come back to it? Or did, um, when did you discover I think, it? I didn't discover it. Uh, I think I discovered it about sort of four or five years ago. I think I was just looking for kind of weird stuff. Right. on the internet <laughs> or weird yeah kind of surrealist um things in preparation for something i was teaching actually um and you know uh yeah so i ended up finding rabbits on youtube and just going a going what is this and then going oh david lynch <laughs> right. those are my two responses i think that's my response to david lynch's stuff yeah. oh. <laughs> david lynch, david lynch. <laughs> there you go just keep on being david, david. yeah yes <laughs> yes <laughs> Uh, wonderful. Um, all right, then, well, I'll, I'll give my recommendation, if that's all right with you, Stella, and you can finish yeah. us off. Okay, so my recommendation is for people who have Amazon Prime. Um, as Kirsty and I have discussed on this show earlier, uh, sometimes you have to dig around a bit in Amazon Prime and surprising things will come up. Um, <laughs> random example, on my feed last week, I found a movie called something like A Royal Love Story, which was a genuinely terrible early 2000s TV movie about the affair between Princess Diana and James Hewitt. Oh, I just God, watched the, horror. the first two <laughs> minutes of it. Um, and it, it's not that old. You can't believe that things this bad were even made. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that's not my recommendation. Although, you know what? I... If you just want to be amazed, um, <laughs> go find that movie. But um, 
uh, yeah, so what I did find that was good was um, Crockett House, which is Mark Gatiss's ghost story oh. from 2008, oh. that was made on a very low budget for BBC yeah. Four, I think. I think it was still called BBC Four at the time. Or yeah, already. did it go out around, around Christmas, I seem to remember? Possibly, I think. You, I think so. Certainly yeah. following that, we've developed a tradition of like a Mark Gatiss Christmas ghost yeah. story. Um, yeah. And it was the first collaboration between Gatiss and uh, the musicians David Arnold and Michael Price, who later scored Sherlock and um, and then Dracula, which came out this year. Um, and I remember watching it at the time, and it, it was, I think, like four 20-minute episodes. It's kind of like a very short horror anthology, and each episode is a different story, but the version on Prime has been assembled together, so it's like a 100-minute movie. All right. And um, okay, and and it is a little bit um, cheap looking. I think they shot it on standard definition video at the time, um, but it's got a remarkable kind of low budget all star cast. You know, pretty much everyone in it um, is is not a movie star, but is someone you will know from something. Yeah. Best example: mm-hmm. Darren Brown is in it in an acting really? role. <laughs> yeah, can he? Um, act? Oh yes, yes, I remember. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, he can act well enough that I remember watching it and not being distracted, like going, oh, my God, it's Darren Brown. What's Darren <laughs> Brown doing here? You know, I, I just went along with it. He plays like a necromancer or something. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. It's a, really, a long time since I've seen that. It's a good story. Uh, it's got a great ending. It's kind of the the linking narrative in it is Mark Gatiss himself as a museum curator talking to um, an interested person played by Lee Ingleby. Um, and and they're both really good. Everyone in it, it's really well acted, and and given the limitations of the budget, mm. it's it's quite spookily done, and it has that low budget strength that a lot of um, supernatural kind of horror has, which is that basically that they can't show most of what they want to show. Yeah. So therefore they they don't. So they find other ways to suggest it, yeah. and um, and it is quite chilling in parts. It sounds um, like Night Gallery. Yes, um, uh, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, um, yeah. which I've never seen, I, I, but I know of it because um, I, I recently re- rewatched the Simpsons Halloween special, which yeah. <laughs> which uh, um, spoofs it. Um, yeah, uh, it, it sounds just like that, but well, probably better because it's Gattis. <laughs> well, it's it's. A, I've never seen Night Gallery. Um, I understand that it was probably very good. I think some of the episodes were directed by Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Um, uh, but I've I've never been able to watch it. But uh, yeah, it's it's well written and it, and it hangs together. Um, and yeah, it's only it's like a, a movie really. It's just a, a one-off ninety-minute thing, and it's it's worth checking out. Um, right. And I yeah. I really like the kind of <laughs> anthology format where mm. you have like a night gallery like linking device. Yeah. Um, and and I I think several movies and TV shows over the years have kind of reused that kind of thing. Yeah. Obviously, obviously, Rod Serling was very influential in creating um, that for that series and for the Twilight Zone. Yeah, so. Tales from the Crypt and stuff like that. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, I think it's a really good example of the form. So, so that's cool. my recommendation for this week. How about you, Stella? 
Right, I am so excited about this because it did actually start last week or come back to our TV screens last week and I forgot and I remembered at the weekend so I got to watch two episodes. Um, the second series of What We Do in the Shadows is back on BBC yes. Two. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yes. So um, because I missed the ep- episode one last week, last Thursday, I hurriedly went to watch it on Saturday and the whole season is there so you don't have to watch yes. it weekly if you no. don't want to. Um, it's the second series. It's based on a film, an original, uh, New Zealand film is it done by the guys who did Flight of the Concords um, yes. called What We Do in the Shadows and it's about vampires who live in a house and it's kind of a I suppose the right word is mockumentary to describe mm-hmm. it um, and the film is fantastic so I do watch the film and then it's a BBC collaboration with uh, the American basic cable channel FX who are definitely a no-holds-barred channel and they've done American Horror Story, which I'm sure we'll talk about next week. Um, But yeah, what we do in the shadows, it's hilarious. It's full of horror, particularly vampire film references. There's an episode in particular from season one that's got a load of horror movie vampires in it all at this vampire sort of Senate meeting, which is hilarious. Blades on a laptop (laughs) and it keeps cutting out. It's just so good. Um, there was some, I think there's some werewolves rock up in it at some point. Yeah, you, there's you um, can... also, is it, is it the Babadook? Yeah, well? the Babadook's it's... in it as well. <laughs> right. The werewolves, you can distract them with a squeaky toy. It's just wonderful. Um, so, yeah, it's on BBC iPlayer. I can't remember if season one is there. I'm sure it was. Yes, be. it is. It is. It is. But honestly, you will scream laughing. It's the best thing ever. So, me and my husband watched the first two episodes of season two on. Sunday, and I sort of looked at him pleadingly as if, can we watch the third one? And he was like, no, no, come on, let's let's save it. And yeah, I was a bit annoyed, but it's all there, yeah. so do watch it. It's really, really funny. The the sets are amazing, the costumes are amazing. Watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. Yeah, and actually the VFX is amazing as well for television. Yeah, okay. I have to say that. So the second episode is particularly. Oh, the ghost. Is yeah, yeah, the ghost looked fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do watch it. It has me rolling around the sofa, proper belly laughing. So, yep, yep. yeah, yeah. Uh, ah, brilliant. No, I've never seen any of that series or the film. Uh, <gasps> <and> uh, Dan, <laughs> it's something I'm looking forward to getting around to. I know that the film and the TV series are not narratively connected. They're no, just you don't need of, to watch. It's yeah. just the, the two takes on the same idea. Yeah. And I think the original film is is set in New Zealand, but the series yeah. is set in New York. Isn't that, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, and and I think in a way because I haven't seen either film or TV series, I I can't decide which to watch first. Just do the do the film first. Do the film um, first. Yeah. First. Well, uh, okay, I'll I'll take that then. Um, yeah. And I th- I think the film is on Amazon Prime. Um, yeah, I think so. It certainly was at some point. So if I'm wrong, I apologise. But uh, it was up there because I think Amazon might have some involvement in producing the series as well. Um, yeah. Um. I well. I'm. So I'm just thinking that I actually think I saw the film on the iPlayer in preparation for um, the uh, uh, premiere of... Yes, it's on... It's on sorry, just checking now. All right, what brilliant. we're doing in the shadows, the film is on the iPlayer. Oh, because, okay. Yeah, All right. because obviously with the launch of um, uh, of season two. So. Right, Dan, oh, that's your homework for this there you week. Go. You must watch as much of what we do in the shadows as you can. Brilliant. Yes. All right. There we go. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. an, uh, that, nice one. That's going to be a pleasurable <laughs> homework. Okay. I'll put those links in the show notes as well. Yes. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Thank yeah. you. And um, it's. Uh, I, I did. Uh, in our discussion, Kirsty, about Prevenge, we talked about Kaven Novak. And uh, yes. I think he's in the What We Do in the Shadows yes. yeah. series as well. Yeah. Isn't he? he looked great. He's very um, funny. Uh, 
and um, yeah, uh, and Matt Berry and Matt Berry. D- Dimitriou, really great cast. So um, yeah, yeah. it's yeah, I kind of pretty much know that I'm going to love it. So um, it's just something I've been waiting to get around to. Oh, that's fantastic! All right, so those links will appear in the show notes. What a great bunch of recommendations this week! Yeah, I, I Dan, think I, Dan. Yes, Dan. Dan, I, can I just interrupt for a second? Just yeah. go and say I've almost gone a whole episode without mentioning Hannibal. Oh my <laughs> god! <laughs> almost, almost. Oh, there are um, seconds it, to go. Yeah, <laughs> you, good Damn save, Kirsty. You pulled that one right back. We were talking about serialised horror before as well, and where were you? Yeah. Where were you? <laughs> yeah, but don't worry, it's going to come in next week. I'm uh, sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, there we go. Well, I like an unbroken record, so there we are. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you for that interruption, Kirsty. Um, it's okay. Okay, so, and, and good segue because, yeah, next week we'll be back here, of course, and we're going to be discussing long form serialised horror. Um, My favourite. Um, <laughs> focusing on TV series like The Walking Dead and. Uh, American Horror Story, but you know, also going beyond that as well, and probably taking in uh, a chunk of Hannibal. Uh, we'll see ha- how that <laughs> develops. Um, so we'll all be here for that. So yep. in the meantime, everybody have a wonderful week. Um, don't you have too. nightmares. And uh, thank you so much, Stella. Thank you so much, Kirsty. Oh, thank you. Um, Thanks, Dan. We'll be back next week, listeners. Take care of yourselves and see you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. You have been listening to, and now the podcast starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Kirsty Warrow, T.D. Velasquez, and Stella Gaynor. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music, and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at And Now Podcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash And Now Podcast. And now the podcast stops. <laughs>